As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Why would um, these things travel thousands of light years away and just crash for all we know it's more like they're sending us uh a gift rush sort of touched on this as well jesse michaels the ceo of american alchemy holdings is at the helm of private venture investments that reach into the nine-figure realm his tenure includes a four-year stint at peter Thiel's family office where he was instrumental in investing michaels has also made substantive contributions to the world of media he was the producer of the podcast, The Portal, with Eric Weinstein. His professional journey also led him to Google, where he served in operations under the Research and Machine Intelligence Department. Michaels holds a degree in history from the prestigious Columbia University. He continues to share his insights and engage with some of the most intriguing minds of our era through his YouTube channel, aptly now named Jesse Michaels. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Kurt, for having me. I'm a huge fan of yours, so... It's an honor to be here. I feel very unqualified on some levels, but uh, I do feel like, you know, we, we've talked a little bit, you know, off air about the UFO thing. I feel like I'm doing sort of a vigilante job. I feel like you are among two or three outlets that are seriously and in-depth covering this topic. And most kind of quote unquote UFO, UFOlogists or people who claim to like be really deep into this stuff just it's either you're you're super sensationalist and you believe everything or you're like very smug and dismissive and so i'm excited uh -huh. to speak have kind of a hard-headed conversation with with you about this well same i hold i hold you in high regard it was nice meeting you a few months ago back in march and i've been looking forward to meeting up again or speaking again and so Welcome. Yeah, man. Thanks. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited for that episode. For all uh, Theories of Everything fans, uh, I did an interview with Kurt. Uh, it was right before I took a long break on the media front. And so I'm putting that out soon. And it's a great interview. And please tune in and wait for it. And for those of you who don't know, Jesse is the only person to have interviewed David Grush outside of Yes Theory and outside of Ross Coulthart, mm -hmm. at least not in a major way. And no one knows how you were able to secure this, not even me. <laughs> we're going to talk about that. But first, what was going through your mind prior to that interview, just prior to it? I was freaking out. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is world history. 
And a part of me is like, you know, it's a total imposter syndrome. It's like, I shouldn't be here. This is crazy. Uh, and I just wanted to do it justice. I wanted to, you know, luckily I can I can do stuff and I can edit and and, and post. And so if I screw something uh-huh. up, you know, royally, I can I can sort of make up for that. And I, I'm decently good in conversation and somewhat polymathic and can talk talk a lot about a lot of different things with people. But I was just really nervous. I was like, why am I in this position? This is insane. I, you know, I don't want to screw it up. And so, yeah, that was, that was what was going through my head 24 hours before the interview. If you could ask David Grush one question yeah. and get a straight answer, yeah, like an actual answer that he said he won't give you any qualifiers, yeah, what would that be? I think the the hardest, the most important thing is characterizing the NHI, right? Like, who are these NHI and what do they want to do with us? There are all these questions I think you could ask him, which a lot of people revert to around who was involved in the government, you know, which private aerospace contractors were involved. You know, how should they be recriminated against, you know, and treated? All, all of these questions, I think, are, are very important. I think where I land, and I, I imagine you land based on me being a big fan of your show, is, like, this is the nature of reality that we're talking about. And if we're not at the top of the food chain, we're not sort of apex predators or apex consciousness, then, you know, who who, who are these NHI, you know, if there are different races, what races exist, and then, you know, what are, what are their agendas, if you can speak to that? That would definitely be my mm-hmm. main question. Would that be the same question that you would ask Lou, Lou Elizondo? Uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah same, 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 yeah. What if you were allowed one question to anyone? Anyone, even if they're dead? Oh, man. Who would it be and what would that question be? Oh, that's such a good question. That's so hard. I would probably, you know, it's so hard, but I think I would try to just be in the presence of somebody who's a, a known mystic. So like like Jesus would be kind of a classic proverbial example, but I think Muhammad and, and Moses, I think these are, are a few of maybe many that have experienced the transcendent in some way and have come back down to earth and are trying to spread a message but there's some sort of translation function issue where, you know, Grush actually said this in our inter- interview. It's almost like the symbol rate of language is too slow to actually get across uh-huh. what they're trying to say. And so if you read the New Testament, just as an example, Jesus is speaking in riddles. You know, it's, it's, it, Mysteria is the Greek. It's, it's, it's mysteries. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I think John Locke even talks about, you know, how how he speaks, he's sort of misdirecting maybe in certain cases. And, you know, maybe, you know, there's a, a famous uh, 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 political philosopher, Leo Strauss, 20th century. And he talks about how a lot of philosophers write in code. And maybe Jesus was sort of Straussian. Maybe he was sort of speaking in code. And that allows for multi layers of, of, of meaning that, you know, it's like you have to have ears to hear. And so you have to be at a certain level to sort of hear uh, to to get the message. And then I think it also allows for this sort of Lindy effect of like the message lasts for a very long time because mm. uh, everybody's sort of poking at it and picking at it. it the, the meaning is not, you know, obvious. And then the, you know, the, maybe the Occam's razor explanation is there's, there's, there's nothing actually behind all of it. But I, I think, I tend to think, you know, in, in cases like Jesus and other sort of very mystical characters, uh, there, there is, there is more behind it. There is more substance, and so 
there's sort of maybe her hermetically sealed um, meaning that that is sublinguistic. Do you think your degree in history provides you a unique advantage in studying the UFO phenomenon, and also to venture capital? Yeah, I think both do. I think I think history does for sure because it's like you read a certain thing, you're like. Like, okay, I'll give you a good example, actually. There are these documents that came out about where supposedly FOIA documents where FDR uh, is writing and he says that we've been given this, like, very destructive force. Um, presumably he's talking about the the atom bomb um, or, or, or a precursor to the atom bomb from extraterrestrials. And there's it, it, doesn't, it doesn't read like his writing— um, mm. I don't think he would use the word extraterrestrial. Uh, mm. Like, like there, there are like a million ways in which it like doesn't make sense. And I think that the history thing sort of helps with that. And I think venture helps too because if you, if you get something wrong in venture, you just lose money, and it sucks. And I've I've been there. Mm-hmm. It's the worst thing ever. And so if your thing is 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 false is uh, falsified, it's it's not just like oh I'm wrong in a de- Socratic debate or whatever. It's like yes, I just lost money. You know. In many cases, for myself. In many cases, I have fiduciary responsibility for somebody else, and it's not fun. It's not a p- fun position to be in, and so I think there's a level of rigor there, and bringing that to the, that to the UFO thing, I think can can be helpful too. And I think thinking probabilistically as well, where with venture, it's like the whole point is you want this sort of um, asymmetric risk reward profile. Like you you want to. You want to have asymmetric an asymmetric understanding of of something. You want to understand that you want to see a risk reward that other people don't see, and uh-huh, so right. you, you know maybe maybe the risk is less than other people think. Maybe the reward is higher than other people think. But you want to somehow have a ratio there that y- you have an asymmetric understanding of that other people don't. And uh, I think that the 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 point is is that 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 makes you think probabilistically. You're not thinking in these sort of like, is this a psyop? Is this real? You know, you can't pre-crystallize mm. knowledge. Yes. You're trying to get to a certain confidence interval level. And once you get to that certain confidence level, it becomes a good risk reward. And then you decide to make the bet. And so that, you know, to me, I think that in some cases, to put it in annoying financial terms, the UFO thing is like this interesting arbitrage opportunity because you have outside of you and again one or two other people like it's mostly snake oil and it's like really really bad people kind of attached to it and yet i think there are a lot of facts compared to that and and people can't think probabilistically they can't they can't not pre-crystallize not they it's either bullshit or it's real and it can't be like well there's clearly something worthy of investigation here i'm like almost 100% sure of that just that it's worthy of investigation and then let's go forward without having to kind of snap it to a grid of like, this is, you know, this is definitely ET or it's definitely time traveler or it's completely bullshit. So you talked about that there's so much BS in this, in this field. Yeah. So how do you vet some people before you interview them? How do you know who you should speak to? I, I, tr- I actually try to initially cast a really wide net and then I try to demarcate where I think things are super speculative. So I, I, I guess I, th- I think it's sort of our duty to speculate a lot. If something involves really bad thinking, just like on the face of it, it just feels like there are way too many leaps of logic. I, I just I won't entertain it. I, I'll give you an example. I guess the, the thing that I entertained on the show that is probably the most out there on the UFO front that I think is probably wrong 
when when it comes down to it. Um, but I think it's an it's it's interesting. It's an interesting way to possibly think about it. And probably you or a fan of your show could better falsify or corroborate this than me. Is I had I had Deep Prasad on, and um, uh-huh. he you know he's talking about reverse engineering UFOs. And I didn't. I actually you know again I don't think it's probably it's probably not the best approach. But I do think there are ways in which UFOs kind of look like may- maybe quantum macroscopic objects. Like it looks like they're like tunneling or whatever, or it uh-huh. look you know it looks like they're sort of non-local. Sorry, what's not the way. right approach? What's not the right approach with that episode or with the deep? So 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 what? So so his his idea is that you cannot um, solve Schrodinger's wave equation at scale. You can only solve it for like a few electrons, and so you have to use. Um, I think it's like density functional theory, like these sort of like calculus workarounds um, to, 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 to scale that up. And his idea is that a quantum computer could be able to solve Schrodinger's wave equation at scale. And then you can do all sorts of novel material science. You can basically, and I think this is a, even from a Paul Dirac quote, you can like predict like how any material, like its attributes essentially, you can do like material science, synthetic material science at scale if you figure that out. I think as a startup, that's it's really it's really hard, right? You're like betting on like built being able to build a quantum computer. Then you're betting that that can solve Schrodinger's wave equation at scale. It's like like uh, Peter, who I, I worked for, Peter Thiel, t- talks about like a two or th- you never want to bet on like 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 uh, companies are are a miracle. You don't want to bet on like a three miracle company. And um, yeah, again, I'm I'm a huge fan of Deep Soap, so don't take this as too hard a critique. And I'd love to you know talk talk with him more, but. It, it feels a little like a three miracle company, right? It's like you're building a quantum computer, then you have to build Schrodinger's wave equation, then building company at all is a miracle. Like it's really hard to build a company. So those are like the you know there's a, there's a lot there, but I think it's generative. There's a lot. There's there's yeah. plenty of marketing and hype around quantum computation. So I'm speaking to yeah. Scott Aronson soon. Oh sweet! Had this whole yeah. That's he has awesome. this whole critique. It's great that you know who that is. He has this whole critique of Michio Kaku's book. Saying, look, it's not going to solve. Okay, well, you will have to wait for the episode. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait. I'm excited. He's he's a genius. He's where he's in Austin or something. I don't know. I don't know okay. where he's based. Okay, so continue. Where were what, what were you saying? So what I guess that was, that was a super long winded way of saying I think that his his deep's line of thinking is very generative, but not. I, I wouldn't necessarily like say I I agree with it right and so I see I think you could you could speak to certain people and you you find all these people in ufology where it's like everything is everything right it's like you could literally tell them it's it's reptilian snakes and but it's also tall whites and it's this and that and it's like 50 different species and the nazis allied with them and also this and that and you could and it's it's just bad thinking and it's 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 kabbalah and it's this and it's that or whatever and they'll agree with all of it there's there's completely indiscriminate and there's no underlying truth cuz truth isn't malleable like the, i do believe there is there is sort of objective truth and and so, sort um, of? well, I, the the reason I somewhat qualified that is I'm, I'm, I'm I do I do believe in you know I think consciousness and parapsychology is an interesting inroad and in, on on the physics front. And so, I think our, I do think there is underlying truth, and then I think what we perceive is not necessarily that underlying truth. I, I see. I see. Uh, um, yeah, I find the character of the conversations in the UFO topic to be of a drastically different tenor. Than those on of the usual topic on at least on this channel of physics and math and computer yes. science and philosophy. There are some ideas that someone believes that 
most people would say, most people in that field would say that's not correct. So yes. for instance, Stephen Wolfram believes you can base all of physics and math and hypergraphs. And many mathematicians and physicists disagree with him. So let's call that a wild idea. doesn't yep. mean it's a wrong idea, but it's wild in the field, in the UFO field. It's not that you have one or two wild ideas, which is the general case when I'm interviewing <laughs> physicists. It's that you have 20 different <laughs> ideas that are all connected and they're all a standard deviation or two standard deviations away. So it's like you buy, you don't just buy one, you have to buy 15. <laughs> so that's something that, that I've noticed. I don't know about, about you. Yes. And also it seems like people get extremely offended in, in either regard, whether you say that it's, there's something to this or there's not something to this or there's something to investigate or there's not something to investigate. It seems like this is a contentious field. Yeah. There's a lot of ego and there's a lot of like, everybody I feel like wants to be the disclosure person or whatever to for me i i i try, I try to and look i i'm not i'm not gonna lie like i have I have an ego i think everybody does but it's like i i don't like the fact that i'm the tip of the spear i would much rather somebody take the stuff that i'm talking about like in the in the grush documentary which i think was pretty comprehensive and it's like Okay, it, it, investigate, corroborate or falsify, like the stuff we're talking about with yeah. Oppenheimer or Sarbacher or Townsend Brown, all of these historical yeah, we'll characters. Get to all of this. Amazing. It's like I, I'd love for somebody to come out and be like, "No, this is this is definitively wrong because of X, Y, Z." And I'd be like, "Okay, great, we could we can talk about it." But it feels like we're stuck on home plate, like we can't even get to first base. I also wonder, is it even true, like to rebut what I just said, is it even true that there's more discord in the UFO community than the average community that's large? So for instance, in the Amber Heard versus Depp case, right. you can have the same <laughs> mentality. And then in, in religion, you have the same. And for me, I see in physics, there's something similar between string theorists and the rest and between different factions. I see nothing of that in chemistry. But I'm sure if I was to speak to a chemist, they would say, Oh, what are you talking about? It's just because you're from the outside, you don't know. So we're so ensconced, we see it, and mm. we think, well, man, there's so much dirt thrown to other people. Can I flip this on you for a second? Just because yeah, I, I sure. don't get to talk to you that much, you're so smart, and I love talking to you. Well, um, so, so the the string theory thing you just mentioned, what, what would you what would you say are the similarities between string theory and maybe its its detractors? If you were to find common ground there, you mean what are, what do they agree on? Yeah, what do they agree? Yeah. They agree that there's a finite amount of parameters and it's meant to be pr predictive. Yep. So what that means is that here's how physics works. It's a fun it's a fun way of thinking about how physics works. Mm. Is that you you have observables, so you observe, you get data, then the problem is that this data is underdetermined by the theories. In other words, there are multiple theories, like an uncountably amount of theories that can predict the same data. Right. You choose a theory and this theory, what you want this theory to have as ingredients in it is something that's finite. So it means string theory hopes to do this with one parameter. The standard model has about 27 parameters or so, depending on how you count it, because you have complex numbers. Maybe that's two dimensions. And maybe there's there's the seesaw mechanism. Other mechanisms aren't known. But the standard model is something like 20 to 30 parameters. There is a way of combining quantum mechanics with general relativity, but then you get an infinite amount of parameters. It means you need to put in an infinite amount of data to get your, your answer, which we don't think is, which actually the universe could operate like that. We just don't think it does, or we don't like it. Mm. The majority of physicists agree that what you want is something that's predictive, meaning you can specify initial data and then you can evolve it forward. 
And by the way, when I say the majority, there are exceptions. Like there's Chiara Marletto, Mm -hmm. who believes in constructor theory, which says that this predictive model is not the right way. And it's it's been the way since Newton. Like you specify initial conditions and you you say what is the velocity of the ball and its position, and then you know its arc. She says maybe what's required is stipulations on what is possible and what isn't possible. And that's called constructor theory. Hmm. So in other words, the second law of thermodynamics is one such law. It says that it's impossible for entropy to decrease. Mm-hmm. She's trying to find a way to reformulate physics, thinking, okay, perhaps we have this incorrect. Yes, we've gotten the standard model and general relativity from thinking in terms of predictivity. But maybe we need a new paradigm or a new framework. Mm. Anyhow, your question was, what does what do the string theorists agree with uh, the rest of the community on? And I would, I would say it's majority. the majority would be that it's predictive and you want a finite amount of parameters mm-hmm. and you would like to treat gravity and quantum mechanics in the same theory. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> Thank you for educating me. <laughs> okay. So explain your relationship with Grush. Sure. So... Two years ago, I had a friend. I have a friend, but I had him then. And he uh, served on the Air Force. He was in Space Force. And I'd pick his brain on UFOs because he's in the Space Force. I'm like, come on, man. Like, I know <laughs> I know you're in the Space Force. Um, and, you know, what do you know? And he'd be like, look, like, I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic to a lot of this stuff. And, like, it was clear, like, he didn't know, like, an insane in-depth amount. But he he's sort of vaguely believed in UFOs. And I sort of got to a certain point in my questioning, and he was like, I do have somebody you should probably meet if you're really into this topic. I mean, you could tell I was super into it. He was like, I do have somebody you should meet. And that person was Dave Grush. And so I met him probably like literally like yeah, two years ago. And uh, yeah, I think initially he was probably like, who's this crazy kid who works in kind of a private venture context who knows like, a decent amount about the UFO field and I was just flinging questions at him. And, um, I think a lot of them, I think he probably was like, wow, like, you know, he's, he's probably barking up some of the right trees here. And so that probably intrigued him. And yeah, we just stayed in touch. Like, you know, had sporadic phone calls between, you know, now and then I saw some of the stuff go on kind of, you know, behind the scenes in terms of his frustration with the government, trying to kind of move it from the inside on the UAPTF and that not really working as a strategy. And then I think he, at some point he was like, fuck it, I'm going to, you know, from the outside, uh, you know, I'm going to leave, I'm going to defect and leave, say what I can, but in a limited capacity and really try to get the executive branch to say a lot more than me as far as real full disclosure, which is really his whole goal. And I think a super important thing to preface this entire conversation with and for like the public to understand is like, I get why if you knew nothing coming into this and you saw some, you know, 14-year intel officer with a bunch of, you know, three-letter agencies, you know, as credentials, I get why if you heard him just say, there are crafts and we have biologics with the craft, if you, why you'd be skeptical, why you'd be like, well, you know, wait, wait, like why, why are you being so vague? But his whole strategy is to get the executive branch to do full disclosure. And I think he's, rightfully admitting and having kind of epistemic humility around, I don't understand, I don't have the full kind of top of the mirror pyramid, full equities understanding of this. I don't want to screw with, you know, American national security secrets with, 
American, you know, with alliances, with like, you know, mm-hmm. really important kind of covert R&D. And so he I think- to do this as above board as he can. Exactly. And he's saying that. He's saying like, he's not full Ed Snowden. And if if that's your take, if you if you if you want a full Ed Snowden, like look elsewhere. But he's 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 going through a proper kind of internal process, and I think that's super admirable and really cool, especially with a government right now that's insanely sclerotic, that can't get anything done, that can't that can't even meet right now. You know, Congress might be frozen for all we know. Um, uh-huh. and so I, you know, I think that's, that's actually, you know, somewhat refreshing to see, but also really important for the average person to understand. You know, the fitness coaches can be expensive. That's why I was excited when Copilot fitness approached us. It's one of those apps that when you see how easy it is, you wonder why wasn't it invented before? And I think that's because it's more than just an app. It's this whole experience of speaking to your coach, of communicating during, after, being held accountable. Man, oh man, is it fantastic. Like, I'm someone who doesn't need motivation to work out, and I still found it helps. My wife needs motivation to work out, and I've never seen her this excited to work out before. She thinks it's because you can do this at home or the gym. They personalize it for you. There's also a streak system, which makes it such that you don't want to skip workouts. As I'm writing this, my wife said in the background, I'm going to beat you in it, babe. This is domestic rivalry at its finest. I love my coach. His name is Rod, and Rod is rad. He took his time with me, found out what I was looking for. My wife's coach, Samantha, took the time with her. I recommend this app wholeheartedly. So are you ready to feel fit and fabulous? Give Copilot a try. It was even listed by Forbes as the top-rated personal trainer app of 2023. Head to go.mycopilot.com slash toe to get your 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. That's go.mycopilot.com slash toe for your 14-day free trial. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Okay, what's the UAPTF? And you said that there was a scuffle between him and that you saw it over the past two years. Can you explain what do you mean that you saw it? Which he was he was the NGIA's um, uh. appointment to the UAPTF. So the UAPTF is the on a I know million acronyms. Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, it's really a, just yeah, go all over my annoying. head. Um, so unidentif- unidentified anomalous phenomena task force, which um, was 
basically like an independent commission by the DOD. Um, you know, you had people like G- Senator Gillibrand, you know, from New York behind this saying, you know, we should we should look into UFOs. And it was kind of prompted by the Leslie Kane 2017 revelations around ATIP and OSAP um, and the idea that we had a, a government UFO reverse engineering program that Ted Stevens and Harry Reid had sort of commissioned from 2007 to 2012. So the UAPTF was the post-2017 kind of version of that where it was like, let's figure out what's happening in our skies. Grush is the appointment from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And I think initially he was thinking that, okay, he'd be doing a lot of the work that he was doing on the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which you can think of the NRO as like kind of the intel, like we're going to actually get the data. We're going to, you know, we're going to have satellites in space doing crazy stuff and like getting imagery and different other signatures of like interesting stuff happening in our, in our space. And then you can think of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency as like, we're, we're the analysts on the ground classifying what these things are. And so that was his expertise, and he was put on the UAP task force. And this is a classic story. It's a story that, you know, if we could interview J. Allen Hynek or Edward Ruppelt, you know, back in the day, they'd tell the same story. He came in thinking, I'm going to debunk this thing, and, you know, it's going to be space trash and airplanes and, you know, BS. You know, I'm going I'm to figure this out in mm-hmm. two months. And not only were there cases in the sky that sort of, baffled him where he was he like okay that you know some of this stuff is is not prosaic you know ter- what what I know of as terrestrial technology yes. but then he started to bump into reverse engineering programs where people who he had even intersected with because he had a 14 year career in intel were taking him behind closed doors and being like look I don't know if you're aware of this but we have some interesting <laughs> programs that where we've we have mate- we have material we've been working on reverse engineering this stuff, the material has isotope ratios not naturally forming on Earth. They're, they're heavy elements, so it's hard to recreate them in a centrifuge. A lot of sort of strange stuff. And initially, I think Rush was like, maybe this is bullshit, but he got a lot of other high-ranking senior intel people to like back-channel with those people and like see if they would lie to them, and they didn't get lied to. I think you know, some mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. people he spoke to had counter intel, had a counter intel background, but he found people who were more kind of of the just pure hapless engineering type. And he's a he's a pretty strong first principles thinker, and uh, and he basically came to the conclusion: Wow, I think you know this this is this is real. Um, and 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 that's when he sort of started to make moves inside the government that wasn't super effective and that's when he was like i'm going to leave and and try to make make noise from the outside and did the news nation thing and the debrief thing and all that sorry you yeah. have to make noise inside the government what does that mean basically i don't i don't know how much i can say but um i think he basically tried to tell like his superiors um you know, like in, 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 in his, at his agency, the NGIA, look, look, this is what's going on. You know, I, look, you tasked me with this. This is, this is my job, right? I'm, I'm supposed to, uh, you know, I'm supposed to find out whether they're, whether UFOs are, are, are possibly classifiable or real or, you know, what, what's going on here. And I, I found all these programs, like what's up? Like, what, you know, you should have oversight over this. 
And um, yeah, like no, nothing really happened. And this is, I mean, I don't know if you believe or have heard of the Wilson memo, but there's a guy named Thomas Wilson who was, you know, head of, head of J2, joint, you know, uh, uh, Joint Chiefs of mm-hmm. Staff, who was supposed to have kind of supervision, like in his purview is all military technology, as, as exotic as it gets. It sh- that should fall under his jurisdiction. And he has a meeting with Eric Davis um, that I think gets actually uh, kind of discovered at the Edgar, the Edgar Mitchell estate after Edgar Mitchell dies. And, and it's, a, it's the same story, right, mm-hmm. where um, Thomas Wilson meets with this, you know, pr- private aerospace contractor. They say that they have material. They say that progress has been very slow, that it's super compartmentalized. It's outside of the jurisdiction of the government. And, and he's furious, and he tries to, you know, affect change within government, presumably. And I don't, I don't know exactly what he tries to do, but he's very angry in the meeting with Davis. And so you, you hear this time and time again of people like trying to do things in the government and just getting sort of muzzled. And I think Dave's kind of one of the, maybe the, the only, yeah, the first case to just say, I'm, I'm, look, I'm going to, I'm going to just gonna leave and I'm going to push disclosure from the outside. Um, which, uh-huh. which I think is pretty cool. So you have a friend, a space, sorry, what kind of friend? <laughs> he's, he's, what, uh, what kind of friend? Um, he was in Space Force, and before that, he was in the Air Force, and now he's in the right. private okay, sector. Right, okay, so Force yeah. friend. Yeah, Force friend, <laughs> yes. Double Force. <laughs> and this person knows David Grush. Two years ago, you were speaking to this guy. You were telling him what you think, and he said, you should speak to Grush. This guy, you're like, who's Grush? Then you're like, oh, I'll speak to him. Yeah, why not? So you speak to him. You cost Grush with your numerous speculations, and you said that some <laughs> of them may have jived with Grush. That made him think, hey, this guy knows what he's yeah. talking about, or he's on the right track. So speak to I, That's my own speculation. Yeah. Speculate and, and about this gets into some of the stuff then. we covered in the documentary, but there's just so much out there that's actually open source that weaves together in bizarre ways where if your null hypothesis is that this is a PSYOP, it is so much better than the second best psyop, which whatever the hell that that is, it is the best psyop of all time. It's the most. It's 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 intergenerational. It cuts across all these government agencies that don't get along together. So, like an example would be like Grush tells me. Actually, a mo- yeah, go for it. Where you said, if someone says this is just a psyop, and then they leave, they comment that, and then they yeah. leave, like on Reddit or whatever. Yeah. Why are you leaving? Like that itself is mind. Right, 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 right. This is a psyop, exactly, and you're totally exactly. comfortable with yeah. this being a psyop. Exa- ex- ex- well? Exactly. But, oh, this is just the government lying to us on a massive scale and with extreme coordination. D- d- no, ex- exactly. Even if it is, why is that something that you can just say as a dismissal of? To, uh, I, I, rather than oh my <laughs> gosh, let's continue to investigate. Yeah, we, the, oh my gosh, there's something here. We should have a church commission on that immediately. Like it's it's insane. If this is a psyop. Throw out MK Ultra, throw out, you know, Tuskegee. Like, and, yeah, oh, it's like someone finds out about MK Ultra. This is just a psyop. Yeah, yeah, it, right. It is. It is. Right, sure. Okay, so so that's it. So that if like you're not going to investigate. Yeah. No, I'm with you, man. I'm I'm totally with you. And 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 to that to and to the point that it's not even a psyop. Which if it were a psyop, it would be a fascinating story in and of itself. But to the point that it's not uh-huh. even a psyop is it's like. You have like this guy, Townsend Brown, who's dealing with Curtis LeMay, Robert Sarbacher, Edward Teller, top brass when it comes to American atomic programs by all accounts, by conventional Uh history accounts. 
You have Jacques Vallée, who doesn't know Grush. Like, you know, I, they're, they're not, they're not like close. You know, Vallée's been studying this thing forever and, and, and used generally from the outside, although he assisted Alan, J. Allen Hynek. But like, these guys are not like compadres. And Jacques Vallée is saying that, you know, he's questioning, would Oppenheimer have known? Would Enrico Fermi have known? Because all of the crashes seem to take place around atomic sites, which we can get into because there's a ton of evidence around that. And, and, and you know, what was, was there somehow a connection between American atomic programs and, and um, you know, these reverse engineering efforts? And then Townsend Brown, who I think if there were reverse engineering program, programs, he was clearly at the helm of, of all of this, uh, get, give, given a lot of other sort of interesting things about, about his work. And so you, you, you weave all these things together and you're like, if, if this is a PSYOP, it's got to be this insanely well coordinated thing. And then you have Robert Hastings, right? Who's, uh, who writes this book. It's aptly named. It's called UFOs and Nukes. He's the, the son of a, a nuclear missile man radar operator. And he's at Malmstrom Nuclear Base, and he's actually a janitor there because his, his dad is the radar operator. He, he's a janitor there, and a ra- another radar operator calls him in. And he says, "We caught some, we caught some unknowns again. We caught some UFOs again." And he starts questioning him, and then uh, uh, his superior, like the, the the radar operator's superior, comes down and is like, "You know, ne- never ask about this again. You know, whatever." And then he starts compiling. He interviews a hundred and fifty nuclear missile man radar operators, these guys are literally tasked with hitting the button that send nukes. They're on what's called the PRP, the Personal Reliability Program. They have to report if they're on ibuprofen. So they have to be, by definition, the picture of mental health. And you think of a guy that gets into that line of work, and they are not histrionic. They're not attention-seeking. They don't want their names known. They're not interested in that. And so Hastings has this 150-person account thing. You have Townsend Brown, who's doing a lot of weird, you know, he's working on gravitators that look a whole lot like flying saucers and forming NICAP, which is the first civilian, you know, UFO organization and, and, and doing, you know, a lot in that area and meeting with the top, top atomic brass. And then you have Jacques Vallée telling me, you know, a lot of these secrets are going into the, the DOE possibly. And like, you know, maybe Oppenheimer was, was involved and then Grush is corroborating that Oppenheimer probably was involved because he created atomic secrecy in 53-54 with the Atomic Energy Commission, of which the McMahon Act in 46 was a, was, a, was a precursor. And it's basically saying everything that emits alpha, beta, gamma radiation, any nuclear material would basically fall under this secret, the, the secrecy that, that atomic stuff would fall under. And so you're basically, it's this cloak and dagger way of saying if you have um, UFO craft, which emits these, you know, radiation, uh-huh. uh, you, c- you can keep it secret. And so you have all these cr- disparate touch points. George Knapp is doing, you know, his own research on this stuff. You have all these disparate touch points pointing towards a pretty coherent story. Like, n- it's not this everything is everything is story. And so that's why... I want to askew the kind of the Gaia types, you know, that are like, it's the pineal, it's this and that or whatever. Mm-hmm, and just mm-hmm, like, like mm-hmm. no, actually, no, like this, this, there is, there's a real narrative here and, and we should be just trying to corroborate or falsify the narrative. So was Grush saying, or were are you saying that Oppenheimer is involved 
with UFOs above and beyond creating the secrecy that was then used for, or the claim is that that was then used for as a guise for UFOs. So in other words, Oppenheimer comes about and creates this framework of secrecy. This then gets used as a as a shield for UFO research. This is this is the claim. Or is the claim that Oppenheimer also took part in this UFO research? And also, yes, sorry, please. That's his own question. Let's take it one at a time. That that is that is an amazing question. I'm so happy that you asked that question. So I don't know is the honest answer, but but there is a lot of interesting stuff around Oppenheimer. Um, so there's a book by a guy named William Steinman called The UFO Crash that claims that Robert Oppenheimer was on a cleanup crew, a UFO crash cleanup crew in Aztec, New Mexico, March of 1948, a year after Roswell, with Townsend Brown, among a few others. And so again, I don't know whether that's true. I'm working my way through the book right now. I think it's worthy of either corroboration or falsification. There's another book called The Fall of Robert J. Oppenheimer, or UFO Secrecy and the Fall of Robert J. Oppenheimer. It's by a guy named an Air Force guy, a guy named uh, Do- Donald Burleson. And he uh, makes the very interesting claim that maybe the stripping of the Q clearance in Oppenheimer's case had more to do with his UFO knowledge than actually, you know, his uh, schmoozing with you know, Soviet spies in the 30s or whatever. Christopher Nolan is wrong. Yes, yeah, d- disinformation from Nolan. Maybe. I have a very uh, prominent journalist friend who I, I won't out in saying this, but he he has a funny quote. He's like, you don't spend $130 million to tell the truth or something like that. He's very skeptical. And look, I, I don't know. You know, I think Nolan's amazing. And I think the, the movie was incredible. But there are a lot of weird things around that case that, again, this is, let's demarcate this, Kurt, as speculation. I'm not saying that Oppenheimer definitely was part of the, the research. Yes. Um, but Gordon Gray, who was rumored to be part of the Majestic 12, was overseeing that kangaroo court um, that stripped him of his Q clearance. And so the Majestic 12, again, is this sort of um, this group of uh, top brass in the military, high up scientists and strategists. Uh, under Truman and then um, later under Eisenhower that basically would advise on kind of the UFO issue. And so Gordon Gray, who's, he forms, he does form the psychological strategy board. That's a historical fact under Eisenhower is overseeing this sort of kangaroo court with Oppenheimer where his Q clearance gets stripped. And there are a lot of weird quotes from the transcripts. And one of the quotes is Oppenheimer says, a lot happened between 45 and 49. He keeps saying that. It's like a trope. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. what happened between 45 and 49? Well, the, the atom bomb was created between 41 and 45. And if anything, he got increasingly marginalized as the H-bomb was created, which was really Teller's thing. Mm-hmm. So post-45, what are you talking about? What happened? And if you believe any of the lore, all of the UFO stuff happened between 45 and 45, 49. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, John von Neumann, has a very, I'm sure, intimately familiar with John von Neumann. Mm -hmm. Genius Hungarian physicist, created the mathematical foundations for uh, quantum mechanics. And he's defending his friend Oppenheimer in this kangaroo court. And he says, it took Robert Oppenheimer a while to get adjusted to the Buck Rogers universe that we're living in. What is he talking about? Buck Rogers 
was a comic strip at the time all about space travel and aliens and interplanetary colonization and time travel and it's a it's a it's a weird it's weird and um it's it 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 begs this question right like you're super familiar with cern like what is cern doing it's higher and higher energy output to get to better ontological truth and do we get unprecedented ontological truth with the unprecedented energy output that we had with the first atom bomb i don't know and i'm not claiming that that's for sure a thing i do think it's a possibility and then the here's the very weird thing kurt um Edward Condon is also stripped of his Q clearance at the same time. Condon, who's known now publicly as this famous UFO detractor, he creates the Condon Commission later in 1966, is also stripped of his Q clearance in 53-54 alongside his friend Robert Oppenheimer. They were very close. They studied under Max Born at Göttingen in Germany in the, uh, must have been in the 20s. And he wrote the Los Alamos Primer. He helped set up Los Alamos. He's from Alamogordo. And he writes the Los Alamos Primer, um, which is basically a a document that all employees at Los Alamos had to read. And then the nominal story is that Condon actually leaves Los Alamos because he clashes with General Leslie Leslie Groves, you know, Matt Damon's character in Oppenheimer, um, because Mm -hmm. he thinks that Matt Damon is, you know, there's too much secrecy. So that's the nominal story. And he goes on to actually work on civilian outreach nuclear programs. And he actually drafts the McMahon Act of of 46, which is, again, becomes uh, the Atomic Energy Commission, the Atomic Energy Act of 5354. So he's super instrumental in, I think, what becomes UFO secrecy. But then, so he's stripped of his clearance, doesn't have his clearance alongside Oppenheimer. And then in 66, uh, a guy named Lou Branscombe, who studies under, who's, who's under Don Menzel at, um, he's like an early NSA guy, also rumored to be on the Majestic 12. And this is all, yeah. this is all in an interview that Condon is giving to the American Institute of Physics. So this is, this is not crackpot stuff. Lou Branscombe goes to um, Condon and says, hey, I think you should get your clearance back. No reason why. And Lou Branscombe is on the Jason Advisory Board as deep as it gets when it comes to American defense strategy. And uh, and he get, Condon gets his clearance back, and all of a sudden he's running this independent commission, which we know now isn't independent because there are letters that have been revealed between him and Air Force Colonel Robert Hippler, where uh, Robert Hippler is saying, you know, I think you should show all, U- all past UFO research as a waste of money or whatever. And so he's doing this independent commission that's not, he's, where he's not supposed to be coordinating with the Air Force, but he is coordinating with the Air Force. And he, it deals a death blow to UFO research, and it kind of kills Blue Book. And Blue Book ends at that point. And so I find it fascinating that maybe, you know, there is a narrative that maybe Oppenheimer was stripped of his Q clearance because of the UFO thing. Condon, his buddy, is stripped of his Q clearance alongside um, Oppenheimer. He's then given his, and also around, he also, they, they had stuff on Condon around, around, um, Soviet that, you know, he, that, that maybe he, 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 he was from Berkeley and in his twenties and thirties, he was kind of a, a, a labor, a pro labor journalist. And they said he and his wife had Soviet sympathies or whatever, but I find it fascinating. They're both stripped of their clearance at the same time. Then he's randomly given his clearance back. He's put on this UFO commission, which is, I think a total fake hit job as history has proven on the UFO subject. And in the background, here's the kicker, Kurt. 
there's a there's an FBI the most read document on the FBI's website is something called the Hoddle Memo, which is about uh, a UFO crash and um, an Air Force officer finds the UFO with the crew intact and it's insane. It's on the UFO. It's a, it's on the FBI website for everyone to see. And so this again, this document could be fake, but it's on the website and it's it's you know been FOIA'd or declassified and it's it's there. Guy Hoddle is the guy. He's the guy who's being written to, and that's why it's called the Hoddle Memo. Guy Hoddle is creating a dossier of field reports on Edward Condon throughout his his own kangaroo court where they're stripping him of his clearance. So you have an FBI agent who's the head of the, the, the Washington field office for the FBI and Guy Hoddle who definitely knows about UFOs, unless this document is a total forgery, but it's on the FBI website, who is – creating compromise who is who's who's literally creating this big you know has this all these documents on condon and then gone condon is given this his security clearance back mysteriously in the 60s to basically do a hit job on ufos and so my question is what was he was he in the know all along because he's an atomic insider and he was clearly very close with oppenheimer and then his security clearance and it's stripping and then and then and then re- and then retrieval was used it was used as bait essentially to get him to do the air force and the fbi's bidding and kind of dismiss ufos and i, I think all of these are super open questions worthy of investigation or falsification if anybody can do that but it's interesting mm-hmm. when oppenheimer said that quote unquote there was a lot that happened between 1945 and 1949 what was the context of that because it could also be that he's referring to himself. Like for myself, there's plenty that happened between 2010 and 2015. Sure. Grand Theft Auto was released. That <laughs> so that's that counts as a life event. Great game. GTA 5. Great game. It's it's a re, it's a really good question, and I'd love to read the original uh, transcripts. Uh, the book is is not the best written book. It's it's like you know 100 pages, and I'm I'm picking out four of what I think are the most intriguing facts around the transcripts. It is interesting. I think Gordon Gray has the full transcripts of the kangaroo court in his archives. And he donated his archives to the Eisenhower Library. The one thing he asked to be kept out of the archives were the Oppenheimer court transcripts. So I do, I find that very interesting. Hmm. So I, do, I think a follow-up from this conversation that you're now motivating me to do is like we should we should go through all the original transcripts, read read all this stuff in its proper context. Um, yeah, so I, I don't I don't have a great answer to that. When you're reading transcripts, books, or whatever it may be, how do you retain all that information? What is your process? Yeah, I don't know. I I you know. I'm really stupid on something. Like, like when I hear you talk about physics, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a chimp. I'm like not the same species as you, you know, like, uh, I think when it comes to memorizing like names and dates and stuff, I just, I'm good with that. <laughs> I don't know why, especially when they're very meaningful, uh, to me, like in terms of like fitting together a, a narrative of yes. what's, what's happening. You know, I think, Hey, I, yeah, here's something you might want to know. Yeah. You know who? Also had a history degree, or at least started in, in history. I know who you're gonna. I think I think I know who you're gonna say is uh, Ed Ed Witten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How crazy? That's crazy, right? It, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. And then he, you, you know, when he was asked why, you know what he said? Why did he say? He said, 
young people do stupid things. <laughs> he said he, basically he doesn't know why. So I have no good answer for that. It was just young people do stupid things. That's hilarious. I think and then, because he was also great in math when he was in high school. So it's not like he discovered he was great in physics and math when he, he was in his master's or late undergrad. Totally. I think was it Steven Weinberg read a recommendation for him and he was like, He's way smarter than me. Like, you should take him or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know this story about von Neumann? I don't know if I told you this in person. No. About the fly between the cars? No, please tell me. No. Okay, so this is how much of a genius von Neumann is. So mathematicians say that the most brilliant mathematician, maybe that ever was, was John was von Neumann. Yeah. So it goes Newton and then von Neumann. <laughs> he was asked the question, Okay, let's imagine you have two cars coming at one another at 10 miles per hour. So they're just driving slowly, coming at one another. The space between them is initially 100 miles. Mm. Mm. Okay? Mm. There's also a fly that starts at one, say the one on the left. Mm. And it, it can, it's a fast fly. So it can go at like 50 miles per hour. Mm. So it speeds. It goes from this car. Mm-hmm. It reaches the next one. But the next one has moved a mm-hmm. bit because they're both moving at 10 oh, miles that's per hour. That's a hard problem. Hits it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hits it, turns around, comes back, hits it, hits it. And then, so this fly is moving, moving, moving. Mm-hmm. And then it stops. Mm-hmm. And then because it gets killed but between these two cars. Mm-hmm. The question is then, how far did the fly travel? Oh, I'm not going to attempt to answer that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's a way of doing it with an infinite sum. Okay. Okay, so you you just add up a series. Uh-huh. But you have to write down the formula. But the trick is is that, okay, if these cars are coming at one another 10 miles per hour each, then it's as if one is stationary, the other's coming at it at 20 miles per hour. Okay. If there's 100 miles of a distance, then it takes it five hours to get from here to here. Okay. This fly moves at 50 kilometers per hour. Five times 50 is 250 miles. Mm. Okay. So that's the easy way of doing it. Mm. The quote unquote easy Mm -hmm. way is to realize there's a trick. Just reframe the problem. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about the fly's perspective. You just worry about how long does it take for them to crash, and then you multiply that by the right. fly's speed. Right. Okay? So this question was given to von Neumann. Mm-hmm. And then von Neumann just gives the answer almost instantaneously. It says 250 miles. And then they're, they're like, oh, you know the trick. And then he's like, what trick? That's, I just summed the infinite series. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Speaking of genius, mm. a common rebuttal mm. about UFOs is if they're such an advanced species, why do they crash? So explain, why do you think they crash and why does it occur after 1945 more? Yeah, totally. I think this is, again, demarcate this as speculation. I have no idea why they crash. But the possible interesting pe- things people have said, so I guess the theories are if you have – um uh, nuclear blast, you have gamma radiation fall, you have kind of an EMP effect. And so maybe that pops into whatever interdimensional space they're in and either messes with their flight path or sends a signal that they should sort of enter enter ours. I Again, I don't know if that's true. Another Another just interesting thing would be like they're sort of trying to protect their resources and monitoring nuclear stuff. And every time we detonate a nuke or we're about to detonate a nuke or things become aggressive, it's more like they're sending us uh, a gift. That's That would be the Jacques Vallée theory. 
So they're sending, maybe they'll send us, like, and, and, and Rush sort of touched on this as well. Like they'll send us like a little like civil propulsion, get, like where it's like, you guys yeah. didn't need to create nukes. You could have gone the civil propulsion route or whatever. Yeah. Like here's like a zero point yeah. energy machine, like figure it out, you know? So I think the, it is a very valid question. Like why would um, these things travel, you know, from, you know, thousands of light years away and, 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 and just crash. Like if they, if they have that capability, they, they probably wouldn't crash. But I think- uh, a common trope of all, you know, alien encounters of the first or third kind, you know, whether you're seeing crafts or, you know, we can we can believe it or not, you know, interacting with any sort of beings, there's some sort of bizarre absurdity element. And I do, that's where I do, I do sort of like the Jacques Vallée idea that intermittent reinforcement, like behavioral reinforcement techniques are sort of used um, as a way to sort of nip at the herd and like so it's like why are they abducting betty and barney hill of all people or travis walton like these people aren't like it's not like the president of the u.s or like you know it's not like the most important but maybe there's some sort of ripple under like a la like cellular automata or something there's some sort of like ripple effect uh whereby like you're like a node and you transfer mm -hmm, the information you, you get it so yeah. i don't know i don't know why why they why they crash but I don't. I, I think it's worth. We're so limited. If 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 um, you know, you you we were speaking from the perspective of like an ant colony, like wondering why humans do certain things. It's just, we're just we're just so epistemologically limited. Would be would be my my sort of main counterpoint. So, do you want to hear my? Yeah. What do you think? Unsubstantiated please, conjecture. Please. Yeah. My I. I okay again and this is just if I was to speculate completely it could be the case could be the case that it's just the nature of these devices so that they're so temperamental that it's a miracle like 49 out of 50 are supposed to crash and it's a miracle that they only have one out of 100 yep okay so it could be that and it also could be that they just don't care about them in the same way we fly drones into volcanoes yep and so we're like all right well whatever they're so inexpensive so it could be like that it could also be that well something else that i that i don't agree with is when people say if they have anti gravity then they're so much more advanced i don't see that as being the case mm. so for instance it may be that it's an independent technology mm. so for instance it's conceivable one country could have developed the steam locomotive yep. whereas another developed superconductors yep and then each would look at the other one and say, whoa, you're way more advanced than me. Advanced compared to what? It's not like it's a singular to scale. Totally. It's not linear. Yeah, it's like the LK99 stuff's probably BS. It's probably wrong. But like say say that had, you know, right, say right. you figured out the Meisner and, and effect and it came out of- And look how close it was. Look at how close it And say that came out of Korea. Like that would be some sort of super asymptotal. That would be like a, a stepwise leap. And yeah, it's, it's not like you have to like build on some necessary bedrock. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, or, or or let's imagine another culture has fiber optics and another one has sustainable agriculture. Yep. Like each one would look at the other and be like, oh, you're leagues ahead and envious of the other. Totally. Or, or weapons of war for one versus medicine. Totally. Okay, so it could be that, that they're not more advanced than us. They look at us, they're like, how the heck are you doing what you're doing? And we look at them like, "What? how are you doing what you're yeah. doing? So that's another, if, if there is even a them. Yeah, right. Okay, and then, and then something else that was mentioned by you, and I, I, I'd like to, to pick your brain on it. Mm. You said that what we do at CERN is we use high energy to investigate more and more ontological reality. Mm. 
Okay, so we use our technology to investigate reality. I wonder if that's part of the problem. Mm. That is to say that we shouldn't be using technology to find reality, but rather <laughs> yeah. the reality is right here. And like that, that you, Jesse, you're so powerful, like so, so oh, effing powerful. You are too. <laughs> like, 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 yeah, like Gohan from Dragon Ball Z, if you ever watched that, it just loved, needs to yeah. be unlocked. Yeah. It's, it's like that, or maybe go it is unlocked. Super Saiyan. Like, <laughs> right. And, and your Super Saiyan is your capacity to love other people. Mm. And like, mm. maybe that is like way more powerful than any technology and that's the most real yeah I'm, I'm with and you. it's this it's like satanic or or upside down to think what we should use is technology to investigate reality it's a complete reversal mm. and it's a distraction so anyway i want to know what you yeah think i think that just, i mean that's a typical what is the, Fa- the faustian bargain is for forbidden knowledge right and it's it's um you you sell your soul to the devil because you want to know the, the truth but maybe Maybe the truth is less important in some abstract factual sense and ontological reality is less important than, like you said, kind of uh-huh. leading from the heart or, 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 or yeah, yeah, le- leading a true, honest life in accordance with virtues that for all we know, the in the, say there is some higher right. trans-temporal alien realm, it maybe maybe that's the currency. And maybe our sort of, you know, capitalist construct or, you know, where we sort of, we barter for things, you know, we, we, we have currency mm-hmm. that's fungible mm-hmm. and then, and, 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 you know, we, we have limited real estate and, you know, and we have possessions, maybe, maybe, maybe currency, maybe the currency up there is actually love and, you know, the four virtues or something. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't there a sighting where some other beings came to some people and said, you're so powerful because you, you have a, because you, what was it? Was it the aerial school or no? A lot, a lot, a lot of the aerial school testaments, they are told by the alien, like, you don't realize how special and powerful you are. And that's a common trope among other alien abductions as well, which I find fascinating. Yeah. No, no, no. Tell me. Yeah. What, what do you think the pro? Yeah. I think the process of science is is the exact opposite of that. Mm. It's saying, how not special are we? Let's keep <laughs> removing ourselves from being special over and over and over and over. And then we look for where are we special? But we've saturated ourselves with the doctrine of unspeciality. Mm. And so... No, I, I, love that. I love that. Even think about the word high tech, right? It's like tech, the tech is on high. Like you are outsourcing your power to the high, the high tech, the high priest, but now it's the high ah, tech or whatever. Interesting. And so I think there is something about science where you do feel, it's like Bertrand Russell wrote about, like he looked up at the stars and he just felt so small. And there's something about science where post Copernican revolution, especially it's humans are becoming small, a smaller and smaller part of the picture in some ways. Right. It's like, well, maybe the earth's not the center of the universe. And, you know, maybe, car, car, maybe carbon uh-huh, based life right. is like one form of life, but maybe there's silicon based life and we should experiment with that in labs. And maybe all, uh, Michael Levin's work, maybe the EM field can like do, you know, create interesting biological von Neumann replicators that are like non human, but they're like from human, you know, like we can like r- rinse a primordial cell, mm-hmm. create a xenobot that like, you know, like 
And it's like increasingly like humans are kind of out of the picture and it's like, how do we create some like optimal functioning life form? And I do think there's some, there's an interesting possible, I don't want to say Luddite because that's too extreme, but like backlash to that where it's like reining that in where it's like, well, you're alive and you're really, you're, you're really, there's something really special about your life and the things that are presented to you are not maybe by chance or by coincidence. And maybe instead of being obsessed with AI, which I view of as it's sort of mm-hmm. a, if 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 this is a larger algorithm, if you th- if you think that maybe you have an IT view of the universe like Wolfram, the AI we're creating is definitely a bit compressed version of that. So it's like if we're going to explore things, I, th- I think there's something really interesting about human consciousness, which is why I love your show, human biology and humans themselves. Like, what are we that goes right. unexplored by con- right. a lot of conventional science, oh. at least? Yeah, I love that. Uh, well, you prompted it. Here. Continue. <laughs> Continue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something that I love that you said is that you, you said the word human, and then you said, "What are we?" And so, something that I don't like when what that people do is when they just use the word human, mm. and then they don't follow it up with we. Mm. And the reason they do that is because they want to distance themselves and show how rational they are. So, for instance, they'll say, "Humans are so petty." Mm. You're a human. Why don't you say we are so petty? And who else? Who do you think you're speaking to? Her. Are other people? Her. So just say we. Right. Right. When people say human, right. humans are such strange creatures. Right. Right. <laughs> they, they break up with someone breaks up with them. Humans are such strange creatures. Who are you talking right. about? Why are you acting as if you're distinguished from them? Right. It's like you're some sort of alien or you're you're too noble to like, like it's, you're not a part yeah. of that. Like you, you're not. Yeah, exactly. They're clinical and operating as if they're a scientist viewing something else from a lab distanced from themselves. T- totally. And so that's why I don't like when people use the word human most of the time. I think they should be using the word we. Yeah. And there's this. You did follow it up with we. There's this weird almost paradox that like I feel like once you realize your depravity. Actually, Peter Thiel, who I I worked for, has a favorite philosopher named Rene Girard. Speaking of depravity. (laughs) No, he's the best. Yeah, but we'll get to that. Yeah, of course. I'll I'll defend him to to the death. So (laughs) No, I don't I don't know. I'm just kidding around. I'm kidding around. Okay, all good. Um but one of his favorite philosophers is Rene Girard. And Peter's a very deep thinker and um Rene Girard is this French philosopher and he talks about sort of people having these conversion experiences and or hierophanies. Um and he has his own conversion Uh experience actually. And Peter. No, um, Gerard does. And, 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 um, it's this really interesting thing where it's almost like once he realizes his own depravity, he was like, he grew up like in, in Avignon in France and he would, you know, drive sports cars and he was into models and, you know, he was, he was as, as mimetic as the, as the next person. And that, that becomes his theory that humans are very mimetic, yes. but he has this sort of conversion experience of sort of realizing his own depravity. And then that uh-huh. creates like newfound enlightenment. And so it's this bizarre paradox That's so of like, once you realize so your own depravity, man. then you, then you reach upwards. You're, you're, instead of your tether being horizontal, to like in mimetically pinging off other people's desires, your your tether moves becomes transcendent and and moves upwards, and you you realize that you have all these animal instincts and urges that are sort of very finite and and depraved, and then and then that that allows space for what he would call the kingdom of heaven, or you know I don't know what the word you know some some sort of transcendent tether. So would it be the case then? 
that our culture, with its emphasis on removing shame and removing sin, is doing the opposite of what we should be doing. What we do is we look at ourselves and we're like, okay, well, what's something that I'm made to feel horrible for mm. or that I just indeed feel guilty about? The difference between shame and mm. guilt. And and how do I remove those? Well, I say that there's nothing that's objectively moral. Mm. So we do that and we call that enlightenment. <laughs> right. There is another route, which is, let me think not only about how my sinful now, but how am I more sinful? Like in what other ways am I malicious? What other activities or frames of mind I hold that are malignant and wicked and embittered? And if I'm honest with myself, I should stop. Totally. Totally. If people did real audits on their motivations for things, it would usually tether to the seven deadly sins or often. Very few people act out of pure magnanimity benevolence, selflessness. Yes. And often it's this sort of transactional symbiotic that, you know, it's not always like, you know, zero sum, but it, it often yeah. tethers down to some base primitive survival instinct. And that's okay. But it's also very important to admit. And I think the people I, I like, I'm, I'm actually more okay with people who are a little more overtly, not evil, but like, they sort of admit that they're they're like they lean into like okay I'm a little controversial and I've got bad instincts and I'm flawed. You prefer the wanton self awareness to the noble ignorance. Exactly. Like like I'm not a fan of Trump. I don't like Trump. Caveat this with it. But in some ways Trump is a cover is is an overt gangster, where Clinton is a an, a, an overt one, and or sorry a co- covert one, uh, where where it's 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 like. You're you're sort of this like crazy kleptocrat where the Gini coefficient, you know, the you know, the the the, the main measure of wealth inequality, you know, grows more under your administration than anybody. Mm-hmm. You have Larry Summers in there, kind of, you know, doing a bunch of magic tricks or whatever, and you're you're sort of, you know, you have NAFTA, and you're sort of just completely outsourcing the American middle class and manufacturing base, and you're flying with Epstein, you know, every you know, twenty six times or whatever. And, and then, you, but then you have all these like virtues, you sit, you sit, you're, you're a signal, you're, you're a virtue signaler and you act like you're so, you're so amazing or whatever. And it's like, I don't like Trump, but give me Trump over that guy, you know, like <laughs> it's like that moment. I think when, when Trump shifted a lot of the American uh, voting base was when he was uh, debating Hillary Clinton and she goes, uh, you've, you've systematically avoided taxes and you, you know, you haven't paid any of your taxes. And, um, Trump goes, yeah, so have I have, and so have you and all of your donors, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And there's some, there's something super refreshing. I don't, I didn't know that. Yeah, and and Chappelle does an amazing, and Chappelle's also not a fan of Trump, but he does this amazing bit, and he goes, in that moment, a star was born, <laughs> and it's true. He's just like telling it like it is. That's He's so like, look, funny. we live in this corrupt, klept- klept- kleptocracy, you know. Government bureaucrats are stealing all sorts of things. The rich is not treated like you know the middle class and the poor, and and yet. You know, you know, you have one side that's sort of owning up to it or whatever, and then this other side. It's sort of this mm-hmm, bait and switch, like bait and switch. Like I'm going to try to buy off the votes of, um, you know, the poor and 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 coastal elites by like saying the right things. But like you're not you're not doing anything to like steer the ship in a different direction, in my opinion. Explain to people what you do at your job with. Peter Thiel. Yeah. Like, what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, for sure. So uh, a lot of it's talking to companies and, and investing in companies. So I, I worked 
for Peter for four years at his family office. So Eric Weinstein, another. F- what does family office mean? Why is it called family? Uh, it's family office because it's like you know pers- personal wealth. Um, and so he you know he figures out what to do with his personal wealth with the family office. So there are various investors who are there. I see. I see. Is that a common term in the investing world? A family? Yeah. Office? It's pr- yeah. Because I common. mentioned it would just be called. I work at Peter Thiel's office. Yeah. It's it's pretty common the f- family office, but uh, um. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah, and Eric Weinstein's former guest on your show was a colleague of mine there. Um, and P- Peter's a, an amazing thinker. Like he's he is he's one of the few people I know who is um, he could have been an academic. I think if he felt like academia was making more progress or something, he probably would have would have done that. Um, he's he's just absolutely brilliant in like a, a theoretical sense, and then he also can like make pretty hardcore decisions in the free market, whether it be incubating companies and like recruiting really right tail talent to, to, uh, you know, create PayPal or Palantir or coach Mark Zuckerberg through, you know, the initial stages of of Facebook. Uh, and then he can also make these macro bets based on this kind of map of the world he has in his head. Um, and he sees sort of, I think actually Ryan holiday makes an interesting analogy that I think for the average person makes, makes, him a little e- easier to understand is like if if uh, Elon Musk is Superman, Peter Thiel's Batman or something. Like he's he doesn't he doesn't oh. like to be you know camera facing or or you know he doesn't doesn't love attention. He probably is not going to like that I'm saying this stuff about him, but he's he's really trying right. to do good behind the behind the scenes. And I think he's um I think he's often misunderstood and and that's sort of a frustration of mine. Um, so yeah. <laughs> So what's misunderstood about Palantir? Explain to people who have a wrong conception of it I mean, and think that maybe, yep. man, Jesse, he works for the devil or he gets the connections because somehow it's related to his boss and somehow this is going to the private sector slash government interaction. Like, ex- dispel that yeah. if, you, if you can. Yeah, that's uh, uh, important to dispel. Um and I, I guarantee you, I'm not. Saying no, that. I, I know you're not. I, I know. Not no, 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 no. It's yeah. important to you. You could voice it. I've seen you know one out of every yes, yes, yes. thousand comments are to that effect or whatever, sure. and so I'm happy to address it. Uh, Palantir is is is, is really important. Important sort of network analysis software. It's sort of you know middleware uh, software for important analysis of, of, of various things. There are all sorts of applications that are kind of vertical agnostic. And uh, some of the- Meaning, ap- sorry, vertical agnostic. Meaning, meaning. You, you know, like they have their healthcare applications and then there, but then there are, you know, let's I find see. terrorist applications. There are various applications. I see. Um, they, it's like Windows. Yeah, it's like Windows. Like you could you could use Windows for many sure. purposes. They, yeah. Oh man, this person has Windows. Yeah. You wouldn't hear right. that. They, they well maybe some Mac users. They adhere to all of the proper data anonymity protocols, and you know, yeah, this uh, this idea. It's it's like Peter was very involved in the in the founding of it, but this like insane idea. You'll see like some journalist write that it's like like he's not acquiring anybody's data. Like he doesn't have access to any of that. You know, that's that is a that's an autonomous company. It's run by Alex Carp. Uh, currently, and you know Peter's a, a founder; he's a large stakeholder. But it is it's it's not doing you know anything below below board. 
And you could even, I guess the, 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 the best way to sort of describe it is like, and Ryan Holiday actually talks about this in his book called Conspiracy, which is about the, the Gawker mm-hmm. uh, case with, with Hulk Hogan or whatever. That's a great book. Yeah, yeah it's an awesome book. And, and Peter um, supports the Hulk Hogan's case, which, you know, we can now talk about. It's public open, open source that's, you know, on, on record. And there are all sorts of ways in which if people, if, if he was positioned in the way that people thought he was, as this like, I'm a puppeteer and I know everybody, private and public sector, and I can query data or whatever. There are all sorts of other things he could have done there. But he went about it in this totally fair kind of free market way that was consistent with the constitution. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all I have to say is it's, it's frustrating for me to sort of read the headlines and then, and even, even on a personal level, I think he's a really good person. And, you know, it's like with, with Bill, you know, anybody who makes it to that level, right. You have to have some sort of aggressive business instinct. And I feel like the, you know, with, with Peter, it's like, that seems to be the, it's like an iceberg, right. It's like twenty percent of the icebergs above water and eighty percent's below, and it's like people only see the aggressive thing. And then with Bill Gates, mm. until recently, until the pandemic, with Bill Gates, it was like I think it's like Bill Gates is like eighty percent bad, like nefarious or something. Mm. And like you only see this like virtue signaling, like PR window dressing thing, which is the twenty percent, which was you know very good at the PR and managing optics. Maybe again prior to the pandemic. And so it's very frustrating for me to see. And I often say, you know, it's like sometimes look at Ellen DeGeneres, right? Sometimes people's PR are the exact inverse to who they are as people. And if you're, Mm -hmm. you have to ask yourself the meta question, why is somebody spending that much time on PR? Maybe it's because they're a shitty person (laughs) and maybe Peter's not spending that much time on PR because he actually cares about substance and he actually just wants to like invest in good people, form good companies and so that's, that's the, I guess those are the main things I sort of want to say, you know, about that. And as far as my connections go, you know, I, I've met a lot of people in the context of working for him. Like, of, of course, I knew a lot of people prior to that. Mm-hmm. I, I helped, you know, with, uh, we had a Google speaker series. And so I brought a lot of people in through that. Um, I've always sort of... What year, approximately, what year was that? The Google speaker series? That, Did you start that? I didn't start it. My friend ran it for a time and he was really I nice see. and was like, I was kind of sick of my day job and he was like, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you carte blanche. If you get like cool people to come in and speak, you can interview them. And so I just would interview a bunch of people in that capacity. Um, and that's actually how I originally met Peter, Peter is I, I reached out to him around possibly coming in to speak. And he couldn't make it in to speak, mm. but we met around that and hit it off. And then, and it, that changed my life. You know, it was an incredible, I'm so happy I did. Um, yes, yes. You were speaking on connections. Yeah. So, so but I guess my, my point is, is like, yeah, I met a lot of people through that. I definitely met a lot of people in the context of working with Peter, where I was investing in a lot of companies, but also I ran, you know, we had a speaker series where we bring interesting people into the office. So of course I made a lot of connections through that. But like, that's it. Like, you know, like I, I met a lot of people organically, you know, by bringing them in and they have friends and these things sort of snowball as I'm sure you're familiar with, with your show. And so, yeah, there's, that's it. There's, that's, yeah. Unfortunately, I'm a reclusive hermit, <laughs> an antisocial reclusive hermit. So it's a bit difficult 
I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a misanthrope at heart too in a weird way. So I, I identify with that. Here's something I should be doing that I'm not. I should be interviewing people in person. <laughs> like I should be investing in that. If I had the money to invest, I should use that to invest into into that because then you can build a rapport better. Mm. Like meeting you in person awesome. made this go way way smoother. Yeah, this is like butter. Easy. But it's because we met each other. Totally. And also then you exchange numbers and you can speak afterward. But unfortunately, I've hindered myself to just speaking about ideas and then mulling and getting upset over them. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, your stuff is so much deeper than everybody else's. It requires the, like, white space. It requires the intermittent yeah. thought period. So I, I wouldn't get down on yourself for that. And there's also a way in which it's it's more... Like my thing, I do more in post production. Your thing is more raw, mm-hmm. but that's really cool too. Mm-hmm. Like you get you get all mm-hmm. this stuff. Like you got you got out of me like this crazy diatribe about Guy Hoddle and Condon and him getting his coup. Like I've never said that to mm-hmm. anybody, and I often come out of interviews <laughs> being like, "Damn, I wish that had like made it in there." But like I don't know if anybody could quite understand. And like you you give people that space to to do that, and that's really. That's uh-huh. really cool, and the the rawness of it is is pretty awesome as well. So I think it's working yeah. for you as well. So I don't know. Well, you're a great filmmaker. Thank you. You're a great filmmaker. Right. Like, so you have several talents. I wish I could list them. You had, you have your history degree, which is a talent in and of itself, no. and also the reading that comes along with that. Reading long documents is, is a skill. It's hard, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, and then also retaining that information is not easy. You have the ability to speak with people and discern. So that's what you do for your living is you discern. Like, is this company worth it? Are these people BSing? And also, I want to talk to you a bit more a bit more about that as well. Like, what is it that you're looking for when you speak to people yeah. for for the, what, what is it called? The family office? Like, what am I supposed to yeah, say? Yeah, the, the, the family uh, office. And I should add, by the way, as a snapshot, like now what I'm doing is I have my own outfit and I still in- The holdings. Yeah, holdings, yeah. And I still invest on behalf of Peter. I invest- a lot of my own money as well, obviously much, much smaller amounts. Um, but, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of doing things independently now and I still have a great relationship, working relationship with Peter, but I'm not full time yeah. at the family office. I should, I should say that. I see. Have you spoken to Peter about UFOs? What are his views? I, I, out of respect for him, I can't, I, I don't want to go too into it, but, um, I'll just say this, um, for, for, any of the sort of more conspiratorial people or whatever, it's like he's I, I, I'm 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 always sort of pushing him on the topic when we do bring it up. You know, it's like like he he's very open minded and goes back and forth, but he's not. This he's, is the reason you're now part time. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, dude, that guy won't shut up about UFOs. <laughs> Who knows? No, we we're, we're um. We, I mean, we joke about it. Like we, we have a great relationship and he, he's, he'll often be like, you, you don't shut up about this. And so it is, uh-huh. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, he's, he's not like some, he doesn't like know everything about that. You know, it's like some of these, occasionally I'll get a comment being like, it's like, he's trying to reverse engineer them. It's like, if only you knew how yeah. many things he has on his plate and how low on the priority list. UFOs is, and, the, and sometimes the debates that we have to that effect, where I'm obviously much more gung ho about, you know, the importance of, uh-huh. of the topic. He's very open minded, and I think, ha- you know, hasn't pre crystallized his thoughts. And that's that's all I'll say out of respect for. I don't want to go too too deep into it, but he's yeah, he's open. He's open for sure. 
what was your largest investment failure mm. and what did it teach you? Oh man. <laughs> I, have, I have a few. This is a good question. My biggest investment failure is I can, I guess, say this because it's public. I, I invest in Sam Bankman Freed. Do you know who that is? The FTX. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I get the gist. Yeah. Well, this is, it's, it's a really interesting story, actually, that's maybe worth telling to like a prospective investor who's like, who's sure. trying to get into venture investing. So I actually, my, my, I'm family friends with him. Like my, my dad and his dad worked at a law firm together a long time ago. And, uh, so I grew up occasionally like seeing him. And his dad hit me up when Sam started FTX and was like, uh, you know, do you want to take a look at this? And I had just gotten my job with, with Peter at the time. And I uh, meet up with them and it's like he's, he has Alameda at the time, which is his hedge fund. And he's, you know, on the side, he's starting this, this uh, exchange and he's saying that, you know, I think at the time it was like BitMEX, Wobi, and OKX were really insufficient as far as their kind of, um, uh, I think it was like their their uh, risk analysis and, and then they had some UI deficiencies on the front end. And so there's room for this new exchange. And it did, none of it made sense to me. It was like, I didn't, I didn't think that they really had too many issues. They were sort of dominant. They were printing money. You know, he was doing it part-time while doing Alameda. He was super into effective altruism, which didn't fully pattern match to me to like a successful... See, yeah, there's like a lot of virtue signaling or whatever. And I was like, hey, I don't know if this makes oh. total sense. So anyways, I pass at the time. And I, do, you know, I don't invest. Then I start to see how much momentum it is, is sort of occurring with the platform. You know, I check out the, you know, I, I, I have friends use the, use the platform. And I'm like, okay, this UI is like really cool. They're like launching like, derivatives markets like really, really quickly. Like somebody will tweet at Sam, like, hey, we want a lumber derivatives market. It's like, it's up six hours later, you know? And like, he was just moving very, very fast. And I'm like, okay, okay, this is starting to like work. And like, he has a lot of momentum. He's like playing the kind of Elon Twitter game in like an interesting way, which I think the ex post analysis is like, you can't actually do that in an er that early in a company's life cycle. I think that's probably pretty bad, but it was a consumer company, so arguably it's like sort of helping the company. And if he gets somebody kind of behind him to, you know, run the operations, you know, he can he can be you know kind of Adderalled out and 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 tweeting and doing uh -huh, you know uh -huh. maybe that that somehow functional or whatever. Anyways, it it comes back around, and um, I'm I'm doing diligence on it for the A or whatever, and we, we lose the deal to Binance, and I'm like. Um, I'm like, damn, like they have so much momentum. To, to Binance? Yeah, Bi so Binance is this um, uh, other uh, crypto exchange that um, was getting into derivatives. Originally, they were just kind of a retail spot uh, buying uh, crypto exchange. And they basically mm -hmm. led um, uh, uh, FTX's Series A. And it was around, it was, there was, there were, there was arguably going to be this partnership where FTX would create these like sort of levered tokens and they would end up on, Binance, and then FTX would have a take rate on those oh, big trades. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. So sort of like a, yeah. a positive sum partnership where they would, you know, and the, anyways, I we we, okay. we lose the deal to them again because, like, the, it gets bid up like crazy. I think, you know, FTX was not, you know, doing a ton in revenue, 
and the the price was just really, really high. It was some crazy high multiple. And so it just didn't make sense. And I was still early in my, you know, investing. And so it just, yeah, I wasn't doing high dollar amounts. And I was like, this, this doesn't make sense. So pass again, comes back around and they're just, they seem to be just on top of the world. They're killing it. Um, the thing, the thing has a lot of momentum. They send over numbers and the numbers look out of this world. Like the, you know, the, Annual annual profit is is incredible. The margins are really good. And how do you so how do you assess that? You just have to trust them, or you do an audit, or what? So yeah, you're 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 looking at with with the amount that I, I was sort of talking about in terms of investing. It was very, it wasn't a large amount. And so, uh, yeah, you're not you're not doing insane audits. You know, on the back, you're not like asking for like you know snapshot of bank account or, or you know things like that. I you're, see. You're, you're, you're looking at the data that they um, give you. If you're putting in like massive checks, you you should be doing all you know kind of formal formal auditing. Your own due diligence. Yes, I just don't know how that works. No, you sh- you should be doing. Loud, you should we be, can talk about that. You afterward. should be doing yeah. due diligence, but you know, for for a very nominal check, like the the company wouldn't even let you give them like a financial colonoscopy okay. or whatever. So it's like, yeah, and look, I don't, the numbers they gave were not. Fake. I think in retrospect, maybe they were conflating, you know, um, Alameda's activity on the platform and FTX. I don't know, but then I don't think the numbers were on the face of it fake. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, any, anyways, um, that's when we we put in a little a little bit, and it was this weird thing where from 2018, 2019, when FTX started to 2021 or two. It was like the best investment of all time. And it was this crazy thing where what I thought was my biggest, I'm in a hits driven business. It's driven by power laws. What I thought was my biggest miss, I'd always be like, damn, I grew up knowing this kid and I didn't write mm-hmm. a C check into this company. Like I suck. What's wrong with me? Mm. And what was my biggest miss turned into my biggest thank God, kind of relief, because even though we invested, it was a very small yes. amount. And then I think it was the same day we actually lost the Series A. You know, it was like we got bit up and I was like, I don't think we should invest or whatever. We invested later. Um, that same day, I met one of my favorite companies. And so it's this weird thing where, you know, things take place over long time horizons. And sometimes the best decisions can be the worst decisions. The worst decisions can be the best decisions. It's really important to maintain that kind of epistemic humility. And it's like a really good, it was a really good lesson for me kind of on the investing front and for anybody trying to get into this. And I do, I like Naval Ravikant has like a good, he has this thing called beginner's curse where if you get really lucky on an mm. investment early on, it's like people win the lottery or, yeah. or people make it really big off crypto. Like initially, like you're usually pretty screwed after that. You, you think you have the Midas yeah. touch. And I think the actually Peter has a line about PayPal where it's like they 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 won, but they didn't think that winning was too easy. Like it's like those they won, but it was like really hard for them to win. And so it's it's both you don't get the learned helplessness from losing, but you win and you're like locally humbled a bunch of times. There's something really powerful yes. about that that I think. Is is really good for like looking for that and found and a founder too. You want somebody who like believes they can win and like believes in themselves, but like doesn't think it'll be like this like cakewalk. And so yeah. Uh-huh. 
What else do you look for? I look for I look for that. I look for having a, a chip on your shoulder, you know. But there's yeah. some efficient frontier, right? Where it's like you're not operating totally out of like me against the world, like hate. It's like you want the chip on your shoulder, but you also want to be like reasonable and like not operate too much out of ego. Um, and so, and then you want humility, but you don't want you don't want too soft spoken. You don't want you know you, you know it's it's kind of like. Again, this is, this is me kind of being a faint echo of Peter's probably better thoughts, but it's like he talks about a combination of opposites and like you want, um, yeah, you, you you want humility, but you don't want you don't want like somebody who can't like brag about themselves and like and like you, you don't want somebody who can't fundraise. Like fundraising does de-risk a business, and so it's like there's mm. you can find somebody who's super substantive. But it's like they they just don't know how to sell. They just don't know how to fundraise. And like that that is a limiting factor. And the zero to one thing would be like actually sales is way more important than product in some cases. Like just really get. Can distrib- you explain zero to one? Yeah, zero to one's Peter's book with Blake Masters, and it is basically uh, it's almost like a um, an anti how to manual of how to build a startup, and that it's like a bunch of a bunch of like like reasons why a lot of the conventional wisdom is sort of wrong. So it's like actually you shouldn't mm-hmm. look for this massive total addressable market. Um, you should, you should, you should look for a very defensible high moat ability to like win a small market and then be able to win kind of small, you know, small adjacent markets, concentric circles over. So maybe the big guys aren't even paying attention because of some innovators dilemma. They'll consistently say, you know, that market's just too small or it doesn't make sense. And you win like this little slice and then you can win this adjacent slice. And then before you know it, you've crept up on the big guys. And it's like, can you give an example of that? Sure. Like, like PayPal is like a good example where it's like, why didn't the banks do it? And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's like a really great answer as to why, as to why they, they didn't, you know? And, um, sometimes it's just, it's just how history goes. And it's the the little dinghy can outmaneuver the big, the big sort of the big cruise ship. Um, yeah, there, there, there are loads of examples. Uh, and then, and then sometimes the market goes in, in various ways where like you build a thing and you don't quite know what it's going to turn into. Like, you know, uh, Larry Page and, and Sergey, they, they were building, what, what was it called? Like, uh, it was like back rub or something was like the, the initial algorithm they were building as PhDs and stand at Stanford. I have to look this up, but I think that was the name and who knew? that organizing information online would be, I mean, it sort of makes, it makes sense in retrospect, right? It's like, okay, you have this, this is uh, akin to the printing press as far as like a stepwise leap in human technological innovation and just the internet and then the ability to organize information on the internet. Of course, you're going to get a ton of eyeballs. And then in retrospect, it's like, obviously a ton of ad revenue is going to come with that. That's a killer business. But at the time you just, it's a weird science project that like kind of turned into that. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's important. You know, I think a a lot of zero to one is, it's like a lot of these, these best companies are built on secrets. And so like, maybe they had an intuition for that before anybody else. And like, maybe Mark Zuckerberg talks about how he'd be at the cafeteria at Harvard or whatever. And he's like, yeah, at some point in the future, we're going to be like playing games with each other online. Like everything is going to be, have like a social overlay. (laughs) And like, and then he he always just assumed like Bill Gates would do it, and like there's there's something about like having that specific vision for the future that 
don't don't take that for granted. Like if somebody else doesn't have that, even if they have the means to do the thing that you want to do, even if they have 10x the uh-huh. means that you have, sometimes you can yes. just do it. And I think that's a really empowering thought. Well, I feel empowered. <laughs> well, I think what you're doing is super unique. It's cool, man. Like because you're you're kind of an insider outsider. Like you are speaking to like people really inside the beltway in academia who have like very prestigious titles. And then you're also entertaining out there ideas. And I think you have this desperation inside of academia around um, progress not being as fast as it, it should, people not having as much latitude as they should. Um, and, then, and then I think on, on the outside, people are desperate for – there are outsiders as a result of that that are probably more credible than ever before because they don't feel like they fit into academia – but they want somebody like you who also speaks to top academics to like engage with them. And so I, I, I think y- what you're doing is like a perfect example. And it's an expression of who you are as a person that, you know, some other random person who might have, you know, billions of dollars or whatever, it, it isn't going to be able to recreate because it's, it's, it would be inauthentic. It's not, it's not them. You know, this, what you're doing is you. Uh-huh. Someone said that Toe is like there's the spiritual crowd and it's too numinous and intangible. <laughs> and there's so much BS. Yeah. And they realize that. Mm-hmm. And then while on the other side there's a hardcore scientific crowd that feels like there must be something more. And it's like Toe is in the middle that has both arms out and somehow can touch or allow them to touch or communicate I love or that. I touch them. I love that. Re- respectfully and, and <laughs> merging, merging the science and the, and the spirit. And if you, yeah. To- and maybe they, maybe those two things converge and, you know, and, and if you yeah. look at a lot of scientists, it's funny, a lot of scientists like later in life, everybody says they get kooky later in life. And that's when they're, they start to speculate about crazy. It's like, that's when Francis Crick starts to spend time on consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's when, you know, Heisenberg was super into Eastern philosophy. Schrodinger was named his, I think it was his dog or his cat Ottman or something. Like these guys get, they, they get very mystical at the end of their life. And it, it could, the Occam's razor thing is like, they're grasping at straws. Like they do their best work early and, you know, or maybe, maybe it's, that they just converge on the same thing the spiritual people do. And, you know, and there, there's some convergence. There's some, there's some omega point convergence yeah. of, of the two things or something. John von Neumann became Christian. I didn't I know, know, that. You know that. I didn't, that's a year ama- before he died. That's amazing. There's a, there's a crazy interview with Edward Teller where he's like talking about, cause he had blood cancer or something. And, and von Neumann is like, he losing his mind and tell tellers like I can tell him losing his mind is that that's the worst thing for him because he's so goddamn smart. But that's crazy. I didn't know that he he converted to Christianity. Was it sort of a Pascal's wager? Do you get the sense, or was it? Uh, yeah, it was. He said that the universe makes more sense if there was a God. Right. It just to him it made makes more sense. Right. See that, and that's so wild, right? Like the the, the highest IQ, smart. I, I I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if there's a Dunning Kruger about. Faith. Mm. Like, so the the stereotype, let me say that. Mm. Let me repeat that. I wonder if there's a, okay, I have to be careful because I don't want to give, I don't want to imply that I believe something that that I don't. So the stereotype is that it's only low IQ people who believe, who have faith. Mm. And then when you go to university, then you start to abandon it because you become more 
scientific and rational, mm. quote unquote rational mm-hmm. and enlightened. But then there, there are people who, like Ed Witten, who's not, he's, he's highly mystical if you listen to his interviews. Mm. And then there's von Neumann, one of the brightest people. Mm. Then there's Einstein. Then there's Gödel. People can say that they were, look, they're just, at the time, everyone believed in God. So, of course, they're just of their era. That's not the case for Einstein, right. nor for Gödel. Right. Atheism was on the rise, so it's not as if they didn't entertain that. Right. So Totally. And, you have, and Einstein, uh, yeah. What were you going to say about Einstein? Well, no. I. What I was going to say is that Einstein said, nah, we'll talk about that after. Okay. Because I'm not sure about it. Well, there are guys now, there's like Francis Collins, like super, super clearly really bright guy who also, you know, believes in God. And yeah, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I, it's... It's interesting. I don't. I, do, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they're obviously they're all the kind of proverbial anthropic principle arguments as to this thing being kind of intentionally designed by some intelligence, and then yeah. Recall how earlier you said that almost all of our actions and thoughts and desires come from seven, the seven deadly <laughs> sins. I was trying to tell Neil. I don't know if you saw that, but I was trying to tell Neil. Like, look. You can claim that you your skepticism comes from a rational place, but almost all of the data shows that we're social creatures and that what we say and do is heavily, almost entirely informed by where are we in the social hierarchy and what gets me higher and what gets me lower. And so I don't think that the skepticism is motivated by this, this dispassionate assessment of the evidence. I think it's that they want to be worshipped by the savants that they look up to. I fully agree. I think ideas can often be fashion statements. More than people realize, just sort of carrying cards or accessories of social acceptance and not earnest. There's no earnest thinking behind them. And skepticism can be as dogmatic as dogmatism. You know, like you you can read like the debates between um Dawkins and Berlinski or something on, you know, creationism versus, you know, random universe or whatever. And Dawkins is very shrill. He's emotional and he's shrill and he's hurling ad hominems at Berlinski. Mm. And I don't know, man, that just doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like you're like more dispassionate than Berlinski. Like you're Mm. this, you're this super, you know, like you're just this like uh, impartial observer. So I agree. You can act like you're not pre-leveraged by your own human tendencies, but every, everybody is. And I'm sure I am, mm-hmm. and you are, and right, it's exactly. impossible to yeah. escape that. Yeah. I also wonder if, if there was a study that came out, like a landmark study, a meta-analysis that said, for those individuals who have an IQ of 180 and above, uh. it turns out that almost all of them have some supernal spiritual element to them. <laughs> right. Then I guarantee you the people who have IQ of 110 or 120 or 130 who are trying their sure. best to seem intellectual will then be like, no, 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 I believe in God. What are you talking about? Totally. Totally. To- exactly. Yeah. And there was a there was a time where I think it was like the four horsemen. It was Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. And these guys were in the early 2000s at the apex of their war against religion. And I fell prey to this a little bit. I was a huge fan of all those guys. And I think now, same. 
Uh, Same. Uh, they're awesome. And their 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 contributions individually to their respective fields are inarguable. But I was an obstinate and uncompromising atheist. That's interesting. I mean, I, I, at some points I probably was too. Yeah, no, it's and that, totally. I th- I think I went through kind of a phase. I just I always thought they were so smart and you know. And now I think about like some of Sam Harris's stuff. For example, I don't want to use him too much as a you know punching bag. He's a super smart guy, obviously. But this idea that we can somehow rationally reconstruct principle the principles of you know the virtuous principles of society and make it all work in an instant. I think has been laid bare as a failure by modernity and by a lot of Western civilization where you have this crazy loneliness epidemic. A lot of the religious stuff seemed really arbitrary and yet it was Uh hyper adaptive, even on a, you know, so just a pure sociological level. Like you can, you can get rid of the ontological truth of the Bible, which if you believe in the alien stuff, you know, there's, that's a whole rabbit hole of maybe it makes you a biblical literalist, but even without that, a lot of the religious rituals and 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 sort of the belief structure is super mm-hmm. adaptive for just keeping society going. There's there's the sentiment that it's not the government that has the majority of the information about UFOs. Mm. It's the private sector. Please explain that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I've, I've heard, you know, what, whether it's the Wilson memo or you even think about how ATIP was set up, right? It was Bigelow Aerospace. And part of that was probably to defend against FOIA requests. If things are kept in the private sector, these companies have, they don't have to give up anything that's totally within their right. Like if Lockheed like finds, uh, something that might be a meteorite, it might be a UFO crash. And they just retrieve it, and it's like on their grounds. I think there's something around meteorite law. law even I think Ross uh, Coulthard mm. might have even mentioned it on your show. What Jesse is talking about is Ross Coulthard's episode on theories of everything, which is linked in the description and shown here, where we talk about recovered UFOs and David Grush. Earlier when mentioning Neil, I was referencing Neil deGrasse Tyson, and here's the episode, again, in the description. And much earlier, Jesse was mentioning the connections in the 1950s with quantum gravity research and anti-gravity, or UFOs, and I've made a documentary on this very subject. It's a short 30-minute, hopefully fun ride. Link in the description as well. I think there's something around meteorite law. law even I think Ross uh, Coulter mm. might have even mentioned it on your show. I should yes. follow up on this, so I don't want to say this for sure a fact, but like, sure. I, don't, I don't know what grounds we have to say, no, that's ours. That's not yours, you know? I don't know. So I I do think you end up in really murky territory if it if it if it's in the private sector and that to me is the only solid explanation for this to have continued if it's real for as long as it has because other otherwise it's it's going to be super hard to to conceal and then and then there's all the all the connections you know we made in the Grush documentary with Townsend Brown getting unceremoniously fired despite very great records in the navy and then ending up, you know, in in Burbank working at, at Lockheed a year before Skunk Works gets formed. And it's sort of this bizarre question of, okay, what happened there? And then he's, his um, Santa Monica outfit, Townsend Brown Santa Monica company, Guidance Technologies, is funded by a guy named Floyd Odlum in 67. Floyd Odlum owns a majority stake in Northrop, pre-Northrop Grumman merger. 
And the nominal story is that Brown's experiments fail, which we learn from this bio- this amazing biography called The Man Who Mastered Gravity by a guy named Paul Schatzkin was a constant trope where he was trying to create disinfo around his own work to marginalize it. And so the nominal story is that his, his work fails, even though he's meeting with Edward Teller and Curtis LeMay and like really top guys mm-hmm. at the time. And, and then in 1992, the Aviation Week publishes this story that the B-2 stealth bomber, which is built by, built, uh, by the merged Northrop Grumman, uses the Byfield-Brown effect and um, uses an electrostatic effect to reduce drag, which is T- Townsend Brown's work. And so was there like covert IP transfer going on there? And so, you know, I don't know. I mean, even if you look at, I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind was sort of, you know, I think they, I think Spielberg might have known more than he let on. And, you know, he had, he had, he obviously consulted with Jacques Vallée at the very least, who was depicted in it. And there's mm-hmm. a snapshot in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where you see two crates and the two crates, one says TRW, which is, you know, former Northrop program. The other says Skunk Works, which is a Lockheed program. It's wild. It's in the movie. Um, hmm. And so these, these two companies, you know, tend to come up a ton. And then, yeah, I don't know. There, there are a handful of other companies that, that come up that I, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. But that would be my guess, right? If, if you really wanted to keep this stuff concealed, you'd keep it in the private sector. How is it that you prep for interviews that you're not an expert in? How do you go about preparing? Man, I, I'm weird in that I think I, I obsessively research in my on my own time, and then I try to be as extemporaneous as possible in the actual interview, and it probably gets me into trouble, and I probably am not as prepared as I should be in certain cases. And then, and then the, the added element is I think you go in with good energy because you're not like – I always find like in, in, in everyday conversation, if I am – know what I'm going to say before I say it, I always fuck it up. It never comes out as good as I said it in my head. But if I have no idea what I'm going to say before I say it, it's always like kind of good. And there, uh-huh. I think there's this article that came out two years ago that's like less, you know, 10% of people don't have an inner monologue or whatever. And this article came up in a conversation I was having at a restaurant with some friends. And I remember being shocked, being like, people do have an inner monologue. Like, what? Like people have like a voice in their oh, head don't that like have one. uses words. Yeah. And I was like, what? That, what are you talking about? So I, I've never had that. And so I think it sort of reduces the latency or something where it's just like, whoop. And like, I don't know if that's good. Maybe it's, maybe uh-huh. it's bad. But <laughs> does that affect meditation? Like making it easier for you? Mm. No, I would still say I'm frenetic and can be distracted in type A. And I just think in sort of gestalt concepts or imagery. Uh, and mm. so I, I need meditation as, next, as as much as the next person. And I'm probably as bad at it as, at it as anybody else. And it, it really helps me, actually. I'm very sort of grateful to it. So take me take us through the editing of the Grush episode. So you get this all this footage. Yeah. And then... Okay, now what does the timeline look like? How are you directing it in your head? What are you choosing to include versus exclude and why? Yeah. Yeah, so it was like a mad dash. Like we made it in a month and like with not that much money. It was like me and my ed- – if only people knew. It was like me and like a ragtag team. It was like my my editor and we had, you know, my assistant editors right here now. And like we had, uh, you know, uh, a few cameramen – and we kind of doubled 
double-used resources with us and Yes Theory. And so we get footage in in the hearing, and then we get footage, you know, back at his home in, in Colorado. And then um, and then we go back to L.A., and all of a sudden we're just like, okay, let's hit the ground running. And I'm, like, writing like a madman. Like, I write, like, I want to say 30, 40 pages, have to cut it to, like, 15 pages or so, which is all, 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 already feels too long in terms of, like, the monologue. And then uh, I'm okay. thinking of like a narrative spine, right? Because I feel like it goes back to our earlier conversation of like what is lacking in the UFO thing. It's not – what's lacking is not – there's so many facts out there. It's not a lack of of data or open source research. And we should talk about this thing Avi Loeb said in the Washington Post as well. Of course. But, but it's not a lack of data. It's it's a It's an inability to piece the data together in a way that – there, where there's any sort of cohesive story. It's just a jumble. It's a clusterfuck mm-hmm, of data. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so the goal with the documentary was to create a, a narrative spine for, okay, what are the recurring themes? Nuclear, recurring theme. Wright-Patterson and 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 um, government officials wanting to get access to it and getting denied. Recurring theme, where there's like a lot there. Um, uh uh, nuclear se- atomic secrecy and the personnel involved hmm. in nuclear recurring theme, um, and then and then we get and then and then and then we de- sort of demarcate. I'd say the part two of the documentary was almost like um, just theory because I feel like we're really under indexed on theory, and that's again why I love your show is because you get into some of the the theory, but it's like are these ETs? Are they are they co located? Are they time travelers? Are they you know w- what's what's actually going on here? And so th- those were the two mm-hmm. parts, like from just a human history perspective, part one was like, can you weave together a coherent narrative of like what's going on? Yeah. And I think we did a decent job of that. And then part two was just like, oh yeah, let's speculate like what, what the hell's going on? Uh-huh. So again, I, I recommend anyone watch it and the link will be in the description. Maybe some of it will be on screen right now so that you could see the channel is Thank Jesse Michaels. Kurt. Means a lot. Spelt without an A. Yes. But just like Michael's. Yeah. Okay. Thank okay. you. Jesse, what part of the Grush interview was cut that was interesting that that is off air, but people maybe should know about it? Yeah. The one thing I think I can talk about is um, we talked about Roger Penrose and his theory of orchestrated objective reduction. And you're, I'm sure, intimately familiar with this, with this theory. Um, I, I find it really fascinating uh that you know maybe the microtubules in the brain are sort of undergoing you know they basically like like wave function collapse takes place there and there's there's some sort of weird weird um discordance with what we're viewing in the form of classical reality macroscopic discrete reality and then what you might think of as subatomic reality um which which feels fundamentally probabilistic if you just look at Schrodinger's equation. And so that that's an interesting sort of answer uh to that question and we were we were getting into like very speculative territory which he can hang with, you know, he can he can go he can speculate. And we were talking about how maybe people see the UFOs when they're in very heightened states of consciousness and which seems to be a recurring trope, right? Like if you had like you have the five observables of like how UFOs perform, but then you also have like the two repeatable things as far as like 
them showing up for people are you're around a nuclear site and then maybe if you're in some sort of heightened state of consciousness. And the second thing you could write off is like the person's tripping or whatever, but often it's people with zero mental health history. So like what is that? And maybe it has something to do with uh, the Penrose thing where maybe you're not – maybe that that collapsing function of the wave equation is, isn't going on quite – in the in the right way with the mic via the microtubules, and so you're glitching into like the more ontologically true probabilistic reality, and you're viewing these UFOs as a result. And there are different ways to you know the ontological kind of fundamentals behind that could be could be different. You know, it could be like you are viewing you're viewing like another another multiverse branch or something. Um, so that would be like you know ever many worlds or something. And you're, you know, and so the brain, the brain is sort of collapsing it into, into this, into this world. And, and you're, you're viewing kind of another, another branch or like, I, I tend to think that, you know, Einstein had these debates with the Copenhagen school. Um, and it was around, you know, whether, whether he, he, Einstein was like, God doesn't play dice very famously. And, you know, Niels Bohr and the Copenhagen School, they were like, no, like qu- quantum stuff's super spooky. If you think you understand it, you don't understand it. It's it's really a set of mathematical formalisms that are useful. And I guess the way I, I, I think, and this is, again, me totally speculating, this is way above my pay grade, but like, I think both are right in a sense. I think God actually doesn't maybe play dice with position and momentum. Um, and, and, the wave equation does say something about reality that um, kind of uh, 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 relativity uh, uh, or, or new- the Newtonian paradigm does not. Um, but maybe God plays dice with time. And so maybe 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 the brain is sort of a, a, a snap to grid time sensor. And that's that's sort of, and so like maybe maybe Schrodinger's equation, which takes time for granted, you know, um, over time, the the uh, kinetic energy and potential energy of of a system is the total energy maybe maybe you actually maybe that's an effective theory for predicting all sorts of stuff but it's couched within some larger theory that we don't know where time is actually creating the superpositionality of position and momentum and so <laughs> it sounds really nuts but this would go to like Gary Nolan's thing around the caudate nucleus and patamen where like me, I'm really interested in parts of the brain where like if somebody makes a decision that doesn't make any sense from like an inductive perspective, like it makes no sense on like a go forward basis, but it makes sense only in the context of the future. And so like it's a totally irrational thing that you're doing, but it makes sense in the context of the future. And so they set up fMRIs to people's brain and the caudate and patamen of the basal ganglia lights up when people make these super counterintuitive moves in the game Go, which is a super complex game, and that that to me is super interesting. Like maybe maybe that explains the remote viewing connection with UFOs, where you are glitching into maybe you're seeing the the probability function, maybe you're glitching into like another another part of the probability function, or maybe you're literally seeing into the future and you're sending the information back in time with some sort of temporal non-locality, you know, it's been speculated by people way smarter than me that you can, 
um, reverse temporal sequences in quantum computations. You can reverse qubit states. And so maybe on the application layer, you can send information back in time as well. And so Grush and I, we went really deep on like speculating around that stuff. And I just, I didn't put it in there because I'm like, I'm too, you know, maybe I'm too stupid to be speculating on this. And he only has a, a bachelor's in physics and like all these people are going to come down on me. And I just want to, I just want to prove that this stuff is real because I really believe that it's real. And so, and so I, 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 I sort of cut it, but it was, it was a really interesting conversation and I'd love to see, this is where I would love to like tell this to you and this have a ripple effect because you probably noticed like three glaring errors in what I just said, or like you, you like, I'm sure know all these people who can like take this way further than me and you yourself can. Um, but I, you know, it's just sort of an, an intuition. And, and even if you read like Sean Carroll's something deeply hidden, he says, look, I don't think like, you know, it's all, it's like, how can we derive space time from the quantum? It's, you know, it's a big question. And, you know, he's like, I don't think, I think, I think we're going to, you know, time will be, we're going to find out that like, that, um, time is not emergent. It's fundamental. That's what he says. But he also mm-hmm. says that Wheeler and DeWitt in the fifties do have this interesting model and they play into the whole UFO in physics conspiracy stuff that you do, by the way, a great documentary on, um, they, 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 the Wheeler DeWitt equation does, does discuss time being an emergent phenomena. And so, yeah, if time is emergent, a lot of this stuff makes a lot more sense, I think, than, than people realize. And that, that goes to this not being just classic extraterrestrials from Proxima Centauri B and more some weird, you know, trans-temporal, you know, beings or whatever yes yes so the so you were speaking to grush giving some experimental ideas and then he just said yeah maybe or no or <laughs> i don't know or and then you're like okay well that's mainly me speaking for 95 percent of it him saying <laughs> yes or no and you don't want people to criticize him for no reason or criticize you for no reason it doesn't add to the documentary so let's I just mean, remove that my, my own my own critique of the documentary is i felt like i i, I spoke a little too much um, he's just really constrained in what he can and can't say. And, and he, uh-huh. he can say, obviously he can say like these mind blowing things and you combine the credentials versus the, the, you know, in the claims and it's, it's worthy of any mainstream news outlet covering to no end. It's like really important stuff. Yeah. And then there's a weird way in which he can do that. And then he can speculate on like very out there, like way outside the Overton window, crazy stuff. And then the meat in the middle of like what happened in XYZ crash, like Roswell or whatever, it's like if he knows anything classified about the topic, he just can't talk about it. And so it's this weird thing where he's like the best person to speak to on the topic. And then in some ways as an interview subject, it's hard too because – Is that why there were so many cuts or is that just because that's was the nature of, of your film? It was a lot of it. I, sp- I yeah, and and I even feel like I spoke too much in the final thing. But I, we in post, I tried to make myself speak as little as possible. And so, I mean, it's it's. I think it's why you're such a great interviewer. Is like even now, like you're just you have this clear like you let you let the the people speak, and it's that's amazing. And I I try to generally be like that, and I don't think I was like that in this in this thing. But I felt like I was almost forced to not be like that because. Uh-huh. I did. I didn't want to do a repeat of the News Nation thing, which was great, and it was it was awesome that it it, it got out. But it was just this fundamental. Apparently, there's layer. a three hour version. I want to see it. <laughs> I'd love to because I know Ross can can speak about 
I know Ross can speak about about all this stuff and 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 you know go really deep on it and and it was probably important for the first thing to be this more serious news story about you know just what are the facts or whatever. Um, but I, I really did want to go into more speculative territory with him and so yeah, it, it I it was kind of all all I could do was like you know sometimes fill 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 the room and with you know my own sort of theories. Yes. So a couple of times I asked you a question about Grush. I don't recall what they were specifically, but your answer was, let me see if I can talk about that. And then you think, <laughs> which implies to me that Grush had told you what you can't speak about. Now, is that the case? No, I, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think he's, I think he's, he's always like incredibly tactical and good about not doing, I mean, it's his job, you know, he, like he literally is like a trained professional at that. And I think he's very good about doing that with me. But I also, and I'll be transparent about this, I feel like a, a filial connection with him. I really, I really like the guy. Like I feel friendship with him. And so if if there are any sort of gray areas where like maybe maybe you shouldn't have speculated on XYZ or whatever, I just uh, I really I really don't want to get a guy who I think is doing a very good thing into trouble. And so no, okay. I, I, I can't say smoke. I, I definitely can't say like kind of smoking gun. That, and he would be self-identifying if he was like saying, you know, you by the way don't say that to the public or whatever. Then I, then I would know that the thing was classified or whatever. So I, I, I literally have no idea. He's he's never said anything kind of not in my mind above board to me. Um, and and most of my stuff, if you read the if you if you if you watch the documentary, it's all open source stuff. And I cite all the books and all the you know and so. That's why sometimes it's a little frustrating when people are like, um, why do you trust this guy so much? And I'm like, look, I trust him. He's a friend of mine. I'm, yeah, of course I trust him. I wouldn't be putting the thing out if I didn't trust him. But you're relying on him more than I am. You're you're saying that, you know, if you find one thing with him as a person, that will rattle your entire confidence about the space. If Dave turned on me tomorrow. I'd be like, that sucks. Like that was my buddy. And he was like an important, he was an important data point for me, but he's one data point. There's so much open source stuff. Right. And so these, these media people that, you know, have all these like little, they nitpick and they have all these semantic sort of like, you know, Dave's a liar because of X, Y, Z, or, you know, he's in with these people or whatever. It's like, Okay, but and then that flips your entire worldview into thinking that there's nothing worthy of investigation here. So, like, was he in a back room with Robert Hastings writing UFOs and nukes, and when they met with Twining or uh -huh. you know, the Twining family, and, the, and the, it's like there's there's so much here, and if 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 it takes that little for you to flip, then I don't think you're doing good research or good work, and maybe maybe you deserve to flip. You know, like it's fine. You don't you shouldn't be researching the topic. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm I'm laughing because usually in the Toe podcast, there's a beginning snippet of about ten seconds of a of a tantalizing clip. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and you're you're using the word you, but the audience without the context would think you're just accusing me. Oh no, no. So no. I could just put that at the beginning. Yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't. <laughs> it'll be like the start of the Neil deGrasse Tyson <laughs> yeah, yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. So okay, so speaking of the evidence for UFOs, yeah. I'm sure you get this. Frequently, maybe from Peter Thiel. It's like, okay, what is the best evidence? Jesse, you keep saying there's evidence. Is it like in crescent evidence where it's just a snippet here, like a grain of sand that makes a heap? Or is there, well, I know you'll say there, there is no smoking gun. Yeah. What's the closest? 
Yeah, it's, what's the best evidence for UFOs? You're, someone is on the fence. There are many people who are watching who are convinced. Yeah, and there are many people who are watching who are skeptical. And there are many people who just find this interesting. So for those latter two, yeah, what evidence? I think it's hard to force rank, and it depends on the person and how they think about things as far as how you would force rank them. So if you're like into credentials, the DOD has over 100 cases, you know, the Office of Naval Intelligence, you know, two two reports, over 100 cases, unidentified stuff. You know, if you're a visual person, you have, you know, Nimitz FLIR data where you can like see the stuff. And then you have what you would have to call reliable witness as far as Commander David Fravor, a guy who was literally tasked with on 9-11, when we didn't know how many of these hijacked planes were in the sky, with defending L.A., he was a commander in the Navy, no mental health history. That guy's a reliable witness, corroborated by FLIR data. That's pretty interesting. You have a Stanford microbiologist who claims to have UFO crash parts with isotope ratios, corroborated by real mass spec, mass spectrometry that he's done that you know don't naturally occur on Earth and would be hard for a person to reverse engineer, and what would the motive be is sort of the the question. And they come from Jacques Vallée, who is a longtime researcher, well-respected, worked on the first version of the internet with Doug Engelbart, and from people, you know, mailing them or him flying out to these places and, and retrieving the, the crash materials, where people saw craft, you know, blow up or whatever. Again, in many cases, these people had no mental health history, so there's there's all of that. There's John Mack, who's the head of the Harvard Psychiatry Department, who, you know, in his own private clinical, you know, practice started to see a lot of people who, again, no mental health history, had all these sort of weird claims of, of close encounters of the third kind. I would if I were to force rank, I would force rank that lower than everything I just said, but because that could be just psychological. Yeah. All of what you said up until the therapist could be classified as there's strangeness in the sky and then there's some objects that are associated with it. Yep. Okay. So that could be either some unknown astronomical effect or it could be China. It could be – but I'm just saying, okay. Yeah. yeah there's, it so could be a, tech in the sky or some natural phenomenon. Totally. And then the, the therapist one. And then the therapist yeah, one. And, and then and, how do you connect them? And the way you would connect them in the rebuttal to just space trash, which is a possible explanation yeah. for some of this stuff, yeah. is you have hundreds of accounts, whether it's you know Kenneth Arnold or whether it's this nuclear missile radar operators and, and UFOs and nukes or whether it's Foo Fighters with these Allied fighter pilots in 1944 in Germany, or Swedish ghost rockets, which was, you know, these UFO sightings in Sweden, considered a high enough priority for Eisenhower to send General James Doolittle to go investigate. A lot of people, the like almost all of the accounts are like, these things seem to be intelligently propulsed. They are moving in intelligent ways. So it's not at least visibly, it looks like they are moving in observably controlled, deliberately controlled ways. So that, to me, wouldn't pattern match to kind of meteor or space trash. And, and there are just a lot of those accounts. You have the Phoenix Lights. You have, you know, you just have like a ton of historical accounts. Um, you know, Steven Spielberg has a good documentary on all this stuff called en Encounters. And usually that's the case. That the I have a speculation. Oh, I want to hear it. Let's hear your speculation. I I'll, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not huge. But I was wondering, why is it that these objects follow cars sometimes or they follow a plane? Mm. And, and we often think it's to intimidate or it's going to take us or it's collecting data on us. Yeah. But it could be maybe that's just 
in the same way that if you want to run, you mm. have to open your eyes. You need some sense data around you to orient yourself. Mm. It could be that in order for them to move, to make some sort of turn, they need to lock onto an object. And so ah. they're just like, okay, that's the largest large object. Let me just lock onto that. Great. Now I can go away. Ah, that's so it has nothing to do with you. You're a side effect and you think it's following me. No, no, it, does, it doesn't care about you. That's really fascinating. Well, going off this, there's, you know, there's a famous article that came out in Jane Defense Weekly, Jane's Defense Weekly in 1956, of which actually Nick Cook, who wrote this book called, a great book called The Hunt for Zero Point, was an editor. I highly recommend it. It's a super hard-headed, nuts-and-bolts book. He was just a normal aviation journalist, not at all into UFOs. And it's called, the the title is goes, Here Come the G-Engines. And it's, mm-hmm. it's Bill Lear is quoted in it. He's the inventor of the Learjet. And then this guy named George Trimble who runs Research Institute for Advanced Study at uh, Martin Corporation. And it's this anti-gravity research outfit. Lewis Witten works there. And so there's this whole wild kind of counter history we can get into. But one, one possible theory on – so that's an interesting theory on the navigation you just mentioned. One interesting theory on the propulsion is they talk about – how we can use nuclear propulsion to figure out anti-gravity. And this seems to be a constant trope. We need to figure out nuclear propulsion. And Townsend Brown, um, his gravitator works um, with these sort of crazy amounts of electrical charge over short distances using like megavolt charges over over short distances um, to create kind of an anti-gravity effect. And the only, the only limiter there is the energy. And he th- he was he spent a lot of his career trying to find something called the quote unquote flame jet generator, and that was sort of uh, basically like a, a a localized nuclear reaction that would provide enough energy to get those megavolt outputs that would allow for you know this kind of constant anti gravity to occur over a longer period of time, and so. Anyways, this is all a super long-winded way, but another theory as to why they show up around nuclear sites is maybe it's the propulsion. Maybe maybe it's some, somehow like, you know, re- refueling wow. station or something. And, um, you know, and they can, you know, in the Albert Salas case in Malmstrom in 67, they, they you know, take down the, the nuclear sites. Maybe they need to take down the nuclear sites so they could refuel or something. I, I have no idea. But going along with your interesting sort of car navigation theory, you know, maybe maybe there's something there. Have you heard of Edward Leed Scallon? No, who's that? Maybe the name sounds slightly familiar. He's the guy who created Coral Park, Coral oh, Stone Park. I know, but then the, the weird, yes, the the where he can use ancient technology to move the stones, the megalithic stones or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a Reddit account, and I think my number one ranked post is me posting like 10 years ago this Today I learned that so and so that Edward Leed Scotland was this five foot four man or five foot five man skinny man who built this huge park and said he knew single handedly by the way or at least it seems like it was single handed and he said he knew how the pyramids worked and he wouldn't let anyone watch how he moved these stones and they were with such precision like millimeter sub millimeter precision that even today with machines that we have we couldn't put some stone back on its hinge in order to make it not squeak or turn as smoothly okay so that's the story behind this guy and this was 50 years ago or so or i don't know but it was decades ago yeah 
what have you heard about this in, in connection with UFOs or in connection with Tesla, which is in connection with UFOs? Or in con- right. And by the way, just to make this all clear to you, but also to the audience, yeah. I I don't believe in UFOs, but I don't believe in not UFOs. Yeah. So when I'm when I'm putting this out there, I'm just having fun in the same way that when the lights are out and you hear a noise, your mind conjures a multitude of images and and you're wondering, okay, what is it that produced that? It's just fun for me. I like ideas and I like playing with them. I, I'm I'm right there with you, man. And I that's a refreshing take to hear. And I believe in UFOs insofar as they're unidentified. So that's where I agree with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And then where I the only place I disagree with him is I think that's when you start investigating. That's not when you stop uh-huh. investigating. Right. Um, and also the scorn, like you disagree with that. Yeah, and I agree. Exactly. Yeah, there's no need. There's no need and the ego and all that. But um, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, on the on the Coral Gables front, I don't know. That's where we get into crazy territory with like, you know, Stephen Greer talking about the government's not only hiding craft, reverse engineered craft, they're hiding zero point energy. And that would have calamitous economic effects if we were to let this out. So we shouldn't let it out, or you know, that's that's their reasoning for not to you know not letting it out. And I just don't know. And then there's the whole Tesla thing, and John Trump, who was uh, Donald Trump's uncle, who was at the Rad Lab, who was very close with Vannevar Bush and all these kind of top science guys in the thir- in the 40s and 50s, was actually tasked with looking into um, Tesla's vault. You know, his his Tesla's stuff, a lot of it is classified. And John Trump was actually tasked with investigating it um, on behalf of the government, which is really interesting, weird, weird fact. And so, you know, did did he figure out anything on Long Island? I think he's being funded by J.P. Morgan at the end of his career. And he was also experimenting with like, you know, high electricity, you know, short distances or whatever. I I have no idea, you know, where the overlap exists is there tends to be a correlation in terms of people interested in, you know, crazy things or whatever. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, I see. And look, I do think if, if these things, you know, they, they, the, the propulsion they're using, they're definitely exotic, at least that they're, they're either exotic and deep black and people do know how to use them. Humans know how to use them or they're, they're, they're really exotic in that they, you know, they tap into, you know, it's whether it's, quantum vacuum space extraction or like you'd have to revive the ether or something you know i don't know do you think another country like china or russia is responsible for it that's a really interesting question that never gets asked and um okay you want to go to a really trippy place so agnew bainson who creates the institute of field physics in um uh, the 50s with bryce dewitt the whole purpose of this thing is to study gravity and, you know, the Chapel Hill Conference in 57, you have Freeman Dyson and John Wheeler and all these, you know, top guys, and they're talking about gravity. And that's they, they're, it's popularized, it popularizes quantum gravity and sort of establishes quantum gravity, uh, you know, of which you could say string theory is like the stepchild or whatever. And so Bainson is clearly like funding like, you know, pretty important stuff in, in physics. And he writes a uh, fiction novel called The Stars Are Too High. And it is about mm-hmm. um, the creation of this exotic craft by a rogue German faction that um, the like n- the high-ranking Nazi officials weren't even aware of. 
And I think some of the crap, some of the um, tech goes to the U.S. and some of the tech goes to Russia. And here's where it just gets really weird. It's like maybe that whole thing is fiction. But if you read The Hunt for Zero Point, um, uh, uh, you know, the Nick Cook book, which is very, very fact-based and hard-headed. And he shakes out saying, I don't know if the government ever figured out, you know, zero-point energy. He talks about, you know, um, rumored UFO reverse engineering programs in Germany, where all the first Foo Fighters were seen in 1944, and where mm-hmm. Townsend Brown mm-hmm. parachutes into under under um, William Donovan and, and William Stevenson, Bill Donovan and William Stevenson, who create the CIA out of the OSS. They send him to go investigate these sort of anti-gravity programs that the Germans were rumored to have had. And Nick Cook actually even has a really cool documentary on YouTube where he like goes and visits the sites where these anti-gravity projects were supposedly rumored to have taken place. There was one by with with a, a scientist named Mita and another named Shriver. And I think one was in the northern Germany and the other was in Bavaria. And I think Mita was in Bavaria, if I'm not getting this wrong. And then there's this like crazy like scavenging from both the the Americans and the Russians to get this tech as fast as possible. And the nominal uh, mission on the American side was, was called TICOM. And it, you were, they were trying to get this Nazi Enigma machine that was, I think, even more complex than the traditional Enigma machine. And they didn't want sure. the Russians to decipher it first. But there was a whole laundry list of like kind of weirder esoteric tech underneath that. And that's what Townsend Brown was presumably, that's why he was parachuting in. Robert Sarbacher was supposedly there as well. And he was... Grush has talked about him being reportedly in the standup of, you know, UFO secrecy. So, um, it's, it's really interesting question. Like, did, did, um, did the Russians figure this out too? And, and then, and then uh, do we, do we have sort of this competing program that, you know, maybe it's, we both took it from, from the Germans or something. Maybe paperclip was like all the more pressing of a need for paperclip because of that history. And, um, Herman Oberth, who was, um, the original kind of father of German rocketry, he was Werner von Braun's mentor. Has there are tons of clips of him talking about, you know, UFOs and flying saucers in the sky and ETs. And Werner von Braun was obviously a very trippy guy who talked about entities guiding him to space and um, was in actually very instrumental in the creation of Stargate, which was the CIA's psychic, psychic spy program. And wanted to do parapsychology experiments in space was like very into all that stuff. So it's a, it's a weird history. And, you know, maybe the Bainson thing is total fiction. Maybe he's hiding reality. Maybe he's hiding truth in fiction. I don't know. Another exclusive interview that Jesse, you have, that no one else has is an interview with Hal Putoff, at least one of, of this depth on video. And you were able to pair him with Eric Weinstein. Mm -hmm. So, that also was edited. Please tell us what was left out and also how that connection came about. Yeah. Um, so the the initial connection was actually, I think, 2018, 2019. I just like cold reached out to him. I, I was just really interested in, in his stuff. And man, you'd be really surprised. Like now these people are like pseudo celebrities or whatever. But like back in the day, if you were just earnestly into the UFO topic, it was a very small world and it was pretty easy to access these people. And if you had any good ideas about the topic that you could, you know, instrumentally add. And again, he probably, he, I think he knew the context of where I worked. And so it was like, I'm in, interested in this very out, out there ideas, but I can also, you know, 
possibly fund them. And I've never, I should say, uh. I should say this definitively. I have never funded anything with UFO reverse engineering. I don't have any plans to, I don't care about that. I I'm into this because of the nature of reality and just pure intellectual, genuine curiosity. And if there mm-hmm. were opportunities to sort of work on this stuff and uh, through, through pa- patronage or directly, Fuck yeah, I'd say yeah. Like I think it'd be awesome to work on. But- so I'm 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 with you except for that. So yeah. <laughs> I am interested in this from an intellectual side yeah. and what this has to do with reality. Yeah. But I would not work on it. That's fair. And I don't want to be told any secrets. So sometimes people will say, like, have has this guest talked to you off air? I always tell people, don't share with me anything that you wouldn't be willing to publicly say. Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah, because yeah, I yeah. don't, I just don't want to be, I don't want that knowledge. Totally. I don't want to ever have to say, I can't tell you. Uh, or or yeah. like, look, look, I can't, I, I, I feel like it, I, I just, I, I guess it comes from the academic world where it has to be open. Yeah, no, it I. It has to be open. I, There's no, this thing never, never in the academic world do you say, yeah, can you tell me the data on this? And then they're like, I wish I could, yeah. but I can't. It's, uh, it's. And and I, I feel the a hundred percent the same way. I think the only time I would ever not say something in an interview is if I feel like I'm screwing somebody else over. That's that's the only yeah. like, and, and I'll be totally like I just told you in this interview that I made a really shitty investment, and it's like, and and it's it's, it's already public information, so it's like fine, you right. know. It's like, but right. I, but I, I I I'm I'm with you in that. Otherwise, I want to be completely transparent, and and I don't think I don't think you should trust me if I'm not, you know. Or, or if it's something personal, like I, I have no qualms right. with someone saying to me that their cousin has been diagnosed with so and so. Please keep this under wraps, and then okay, that's fine. I'm not going to talk about that. That's completely different. Yep. Than than a government secret, for instance. So totally. But anyway, continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your your interest in this is is cerebral and metaphysical, and if you were given the opportunity, you would. Maybe making it clear that you have not. Yeah, maybe (laughs) you are making it clear you have not invested. Never, never in the phenomenon. Never, and and don't even know. Other than making your own YouTube channel, but yeah, 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 sure, yeah, 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 exactly. Doesn't count. Doesn't count. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm interested in it. I think for the same reasons you are. It's like I think anomalies can point to new scientific paradigms, just like black body radiation with quantum mechanics, or. Yes, or, yeah, great, um, great, great, or, great, great points. Or, or, or uh, you know, the or orbit of Mer- Mercury with with relativity, where you know the Newtonian paradigm couldn't explain it. Where it's like you you get these weird observables that break the current theory. And again, that's why your show is so cool. It's like you're exploring the anomalies with an open mind because they could construct. You can construct new theories as a result. And so, yeah. Anyway, go, going back to the put off thing. I was maybe Gary Nolan, Gary Nolan or somebody like that might have introed me, or or I think I might have just cold reached out and been like, "Hey, man, I'm super into your stuff," and like mm-hmm. wrote like an earnest sure. email about like showing I was I'd like sort of deeply researched it, and and he was open to meeting. And then what was the other? There was another part of that question with yeah. On. What okay, so that explains you met him in about 2018 via cold email. Yeah. You interviewed him. What was left out? I think a lot of what was left out, and I know there, like people, some of the comments are like, "Like, why did you, you left out the craziest stuff or whatever?" And it's like, we left out like some of the kookiest, like, like this is. I think it was, it was, it was um, awesome. What's for, the difference between crazy and kooky? Well, some of the craziest, <laughs> craziest, like, um, yeah, totally. No, good, good point. I mean, like, um, 
crazy in terms of the implication, like definitely true and like really important and with uh, profound implications. Oh, okay. And it's like, th- we definitely didn't do that. I like, um, I think it was, Secrets, it was it, so more secretive versus speculative. Right. Exactly. I think, I think I the stuff we cut was like hyper speculative, like going really into quacky places on the parapsychology. And like, I think it took a lot for Eric uh, to do that interview, especially at the time, this was like earlier in the UFO curve where like now it's somehow become super acceptable for like everybody to talk about, but it was kind of relegated to like more, you know, kooky, kooky people at the time. And, um, you know, Eric has, as you know, a theory of everything. And, um, I think in the process of, of having that gain greater acceptance, you have to be sensitive to, uh, other stuff you sort of entertain and um, so I think, yeah, if we if we cut anything, it, it was my own decision, sort of out of conscientiousness for to him because he was nice enough to do the interview with me, where I, uh-huh. I I didn't want to fully implicate himself with stuff that I'm willing to explore personally, but you know I think maybe he needs he needs to you know not be not be swimming in that in that sort of stuff. Okay, at first when you said that there were more conjectural ideas that it would be coming from how put off. Am I to? Am, I'm surmising that they came from Eric Weinstein as well. No, no, it wasn't like he said anything. I think it was like you know the association or whatever. Yeah, by, not, to, by being oh, there. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. He he didn't say. Ah, uh, so by not putting up enough of an objection, it could be seen as being tacitly in accord with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like maybe we talked about Ingo Swan's book Penetration and Space Side and Earth Side. You know, it's like. Stuff that's just like it's impossible to falsify or corroborate, and so it's like not even true, you know. And so because it's it's not even you know it's it's or sorry not even wrong, you know the the Feynman thing. So it's like if you can't falsify it, why are we bringing it up? And and um yeah, that's sort of that sort of stuff. And so I, I also just wanted to keep the flow good and you know make sure it was comprehensible for the average person as well, which you know ho- hopefully it was. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's funny to Can be. Can you say what some of them are now? I don't even remember. Like, it's really like that's how. Like, yeah. Not, I mean, I think maybe that the thing about Ingo Swan, like where it was like that, or maybe like maybe getting into Bob Lazar, like a little deeper into Bob Lazar or things like that. Where it's like, I don't think Hal's that's, presence that's there. Fantastic! You should have. Yeah, it could it could it could have been good, but I don't like it. Was like, I knew it's like Hal wasn't going to say anything. You know, he couldn't talk about it. If he did know anything about it, he probably wouldn't have said. And he did, he definitely didn't say anything. It. I could. I swear on my mother's life that I'm not sitting on some bombshell revelation from Hal Putoff from that interview. I, like not the, element 115 behind you? No, Muscovium is not – the stable version of Muscovian is not sitting in this uh, – you know, on my couch. Yeah. <laughs> you know when you said when, when I visited and then I was leaving, I saw this, this woman outside your place, mm. this old woman. Mm. And then I, I asked you about that initially, and then you said, no, there shouldn't be anyone. And then 20 minutes prior to that, you said, yeah, there are some crazy happenings here. Crazy <laughs> happenings. And, then, and then I walked away. I'm like, what, what was that woman that I saw that was right up? And then you told me later it was your landlady or your, or your gardener. Or- oh, I don't know. I don't know uh, who, who that yeah, was. Well, but you, okay, I, will, well, I hope so. I will- it looked like some necromancer. <laughs> That's creepy. That's weird. Yeah, like if a hom, if 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 such such a creature took a hominid form, like at least at nighttime. I'm not trying to insult her, but I remember feeling uneasy looking at her. 
I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember this. Or the outside for the, a gardener. It could have been my yeah, cleaning lady. Well, I, hope she, I hope she, she doesn't look like a necromancer. <laughs> no, no, but, but to me at nighttime, it's always like a throne. Well, well, what I was talking about was not, you know, old, you know, ladies appearing, ran, yes. random apparitions. Yes. But Laurel Canyon's a trippy place. It's a weird place. There's, weird, there's definitely interesting energy. I think it's some sort of energy portal. You get all this crazy music history in the 60s and 70s. I don't think that's a coincidence. Townsend Brown lived here for a time when he worked at Martin Vega, which I find fascinating. Um, there's a, a decommissioned Air Force base around here that uh, I think I, I think Jared Lido now lives on. That's like really trippy and weird. And it's just got a – there's a book called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon that documents a lot of the conspiracies from back in the day around Laurel Canyon. It's just a strange sort of place, and uh, I've loved it while living here, but um, I'm kind of down to get out. It's, it's, it's run its course. It's been really fun, but uh, it's, yeah, I, I've, yeah, go for it. Before we talk about Alvi Loeb, mm, yeah. David Grush said in your documentary, which again, I'm going to link, and the link is in the description, or it may be on screen as well right now. Your documentary that for that is on Jesse Michael's channel called what is it called? It's called American Alchemy, you know. but the but yeah, you'd search in Jesse Michaels because that's the handle yeah. of the channel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean the the YouTube type the video type. Oh, Dave Grush Before. tells me everything, which is an annoyingly hyperbolic oh, you YouTube title. How are you choosing the thumbnail? Uh, so that that thumbnail was tough because I got I got criticized for it, which was probably right. The, From the, the the thing about it is we had this weird thing where we needed a wide shot with me and him. I wanted to do a candid shot that showed I was in the same place as him because I didn't want to make – I wanted to make it clear to the viewer who was an incrementally new viewer who like was just seeing the thumbnail for the first time that I was with him because that was so important. I wasn't making some other – you know some new like commentary video, which is – they're all over yes. YouTube. And so I was like, okay, yes. I need to find one where I'm with him. We couldn't find anything from the hike. And then the wide shot had like Amar from Yes Theory. His back was like in it for half the time or whatever. So the, the one shot we could find was kind of a jarring face that he was making. But in a weird way, it was like, it was like, you know, it was like clear that I was with him and he was like making a point and he was animated. And so we just ran with it and I changed it. So now the evergreen version is like a much more, you know, I think kind of respectable ver looking version of him or whatever. Um, and it, it, it was kind of, uh, I, look, I didn't think it, I didn't think it looked I, I that terrible, criticism. but it, it, yeah, I don't know the, look, the, the most important thing to me was to get, get people to watch the thing. And the average view duration is still 26 and a half minutes, which is crazy. And and the click-through yeah. rate's bonkers too. So like empirically, whatever we did worked and it's now, you know, he has a more like normal looking face yeah. or whatever. And um yeah, I, I, okay. I feel I feel I shitty we can to, you know get a better picture, but I, yeah. I I don't care. I mean from one content creator to another. How is it that you choose the thumbs? Oh, just generally? general. I, I just try to yeah. get I, I try to be as hard headed as possible. It's like how do we get the most view? How do we get the highest click-through rate? Do you generate several concepts and then test out a few um do you just settle on one then you're like this one feels right if, if the video is like as important uh, you know important enough I'll, I'll often do that and sometimes i'll you know I, I like the mr beast you know he's i don't 
admire him as a thinker or intellectual, but I, I, he's the best at YouTube. That guy's the best at YouTube. Well, as a businessman, in, you can in, admire him. Oh, beyond. Yeah. Insane what he's done. Yeah. And he's 24. Wild. 25 now. Wild. And he, in what, and I like his process, which is he creates the thumbnail. He has to be high conviction in a thumbnail and a title before he even makes the video. And so exactly. I that's tr- not that's not something that would ever occur to me. So I that would never occur to me. Me initially, me too. I like, was like, I was like, this is stupid. I don't like that. And, and then I started to fall into this groove of like the stuff we make is a little higher production quality than like your oh, average course, YouTube video. That, yeah. And like we're investing a lot of resources. And I'm like, if we're gonna invest resources, I can't have these things go into black holes. Like I just can't have them. Like if if it's just like a you know kind of a raw conversation, it's fine. You know, one hits, one misses. It's all good. You know. But if you're investing like a decent amount of resources, like you need you need them to hit. And so I just started to use that process where it's like unless I'm high conviction on the thumbnail and the title, you know, yeah, rework the concept until you are high con- high conviction in that. And yeah, that's basically what what inspired. Yeah. So. There's a danger with putting too much production value into a video, but you struck a balance. So for Thank there's you. two sides. Like go way overproduced, way right. way overproduced, right. like eight K <laughs> and beautiful light, and that that can work. Yeah. Like there are that can work. You can do that tastefully. And then there's the other side of just completely scrappy. Just put up the just put up the live stream, and that's right. it from Zoom. Right. And not even process the audio. Don't do any editing. Okay. So. So on the one side, one feels more raw and authentic. Mm-hmm. So people like that, but new viewers aren't so attracted to it. But then on the other side, if you go too overboard, it feels inauthentic. It feels overproduced, like you were able to mm-hmm. go out to dinner and have such a rapport with the guests that you're no longer unbiased. So how do you strike that balance? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I try to keep it as raw as I can while keeping the flow and realizing that the value prop I'm providing, like you do great long form interviews. And so like, I have to like, and like Jeffrey Mishlove does like great long form interviews. Like, and like, so it's like, I have to like up yeah, off my game. I have to like yeah. do something different, you know? And so that's kind of oh. the way I'm thinking about it is like, how do I, and, and I do think, um, we know along with like remembering the facts and weaving together the narratives, like I do think, Again, I'm dumb on all sorts of vectors, but the thing I'm really good at is like putting like coherent narratives and like patterns together. And so the narrativizing it both probably makes up for like me being like a shittier interviewer than you, but it also like allows me to like have like a narrative spine that I'm like can high conviction in that the interview can actually um, kind of embellish and, 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 and illustrate, which I think is really important for this topic where there is just so much content and yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to weave together something kind of cohesive if that, if that makes sense. So like if somebody doesn't Uh really know what's going on, they're like, okay, okay, right, Pat, the atomic stuff's important. Who's this guy, Townsend Brown? I'm going to read this book. You know, that's kind of the goal. David Grush said that in 2024, he said this on yours, ish is going to go down. It's going to be crazy, a crazy year. Why? And did do you have any indication as to when in 2024? Like first half is a March, is it February? Yeah, I've heard, you know, John Ramirez talk about 2027 and Linda Moulton Howe, Roswell Alien interview, talk about some imminent 
I think it was 2025, actually, event. And, you know, people say, you know, uh, Leslie Kane's talked about people who are in the know, you know, saying things are going to get imminently worse. I don't know how anybody can predict. I think global global history is not, it's being written as we speak. And it's it's just impossible to say how things go. Obviously, um, in some ways, I think what's happening in the Middle East feels weirdly analogous to like World War One, not the players, but the powder keg dynamics where you have Iran and Saudi as these sort of, you know, like maybe Iran was sort of pushing Hamas to do this so Israel wouldn't ally with Saudi. And then maybe maybe China uses the whole thing as distraction to take Taiwan, which, you know, clearly is an intent of theirs in the next five to ten years. Russia, Russia, Ukraine feels super unstable. I can't think of, you know, it's like kinetic energy versus potential energy. I can't think, and you know what happens when you're in a high potential energy state, you move to a, you know, resting state. I can't think of a higher potential energy, you know, kind of powder keg where it's like this, this stuff could get gnarly quickly. Um, and it kind of makes it all the more imminent to like, like, it's like, okay. And if there's some like framework where it's like, we're wrong in our current myopic framework, we should explore the better framework. And I think that's part of what your show is doing. And so, yeah, around the specific events, you know, I just, I don't think anybody can predict them, but just if you look at what's happening in the world right now, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't, it's a, we have this multipolar world and, you know, it's, it's, it's scary. And it's, and, and just to keep the Ukraine situation at stable state, we need to, U.S. needs to keep investing more and more and more and then on top of that, you have the aid we're probably going to have to give to to, to Israel, and then um, you know possible interventions there. You know, I know past re, you know American presidencies have talked about regime change in Iran, and it's like if if you're even thinking about that, how are you going to deal with China, which is probably like the real you know the real the real um, competition, and it's it's scary. And so I, I don't I don't envy you know, people who have to think about this on a day-to-day basis. And it, and it just nominally, it doesn't feel like at least the front-facing people in Washington, they don't feel, <laughs> they don't feel like they know their ass from their forehead or like are at all well, well equipped to, to, to deal with any of this stuff. So it's, it's scary. Avi Loeb gave you some pushback yeah. on your doc. Yeah. Please talk about that. So I, I, I respect Avi and I interviewed him on my show and um, I, I'm only speculating, but maybe he was felt a little cri- criticized by the fact that I said, you know, if you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, don't add to the haystack. And then Dave actually added, yeah, we're actually oversaturated with, with data. And the only thing you get from like increased sensor data is an understanding of more hotspots and activity. But really, I think we're under-indexed on theory. So again, point to, you know, it's like a good, 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 uh, ground, fertile grounds for theories of everything where it's like, we have a, a, a lot of data. We, we, it's, the data is not well organized. So maybe we can have more standard taxonomy. Maybe we can have, you know, multi-sensory, more corroborated data. It'd be awesome if the mm-hmm. DOD opened up, you know, okay, what, what are all the, what, what are the multi-sensory data? You know, can, can we see the database? Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't have the database. So it's like, the Galileo project finding that is awesome and that's really cool. But I do think there's this uh outsourcing of our agency to machine learning that's been going on with the whole AI hype cycle where 
I think AI works well. It's almost like the Daft Punk song where it do it does what humans do at low sample size, harder, better, faster, stronger. But it doesn't do it stepwise better. You can't take fire, digitize it, turn it into a database and get a light bulb. You can't take a, a horse, cut it up, digitize it and get a car. These tank these the 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 really cool stuff mm. takes consilience in interdomain knowledge and polymathism. And there's something about the I think kind of lazy data story of the Galileo project where it's like we're just gonna get more multi-sensory data. Where oh, if you can't figure out if the human brain can't figure out what's going on at low sample size, yeah. why would we understand it at high sample size? You'd just be getting this bigger database. And maybe there's something about some of the sensors where it's like more smoking gun that the thing exists or something. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh-huh. You know, there's probably some possibly good rebuttal that, that he has, but I took his dismissal of my stuff as, you know, a little bit of a, you know, like, like, uh, it's because I critiqued him maybe implicitly, which I didn't even mean, you know, I think it's great that anybody in academia is sort of studying this, but, um, yeah, that's, that's my read. That's my read on that, I guess. How did you feel when you read it? Um, I, it's fine. Like, I, I, if if he wanted to talk, I'd hop on a Zoom with him tomorrow, and it, like, I, it's all good. You know, I've had a good relationship with him. You know, through the years, and I do look. If I were to critique him a little more, it's like there's all this stuff out that lies outside of the traditional scientific framework, like the parapsychology stuff that I found in my, at least first interaction with him, he wasn't even aware of like he, in, and, and then, you know, it's like the nuclear reaction, the nuclear connection. I think he started to become more aware of. And so, yeah, you're going to have a bunch of people pushing you towards the same historical stuff I dug up like eventually, because I, I really do think this stuff is going to become more important as a part of the narrative, the things, the important facts around Condon and Oppenheimer and Townsend Brown, where your whole project is predicated on there being a possibility that this is real. And if you're saying that the historical personnel analysis is just, we should just throw all of that out, it's just not good fact finding. You can say like only looking at like data in a, in a multidimensional database is science, or you can say, no, it's, 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 it's investigatory and it, and you can investigate what certain people have found in the past who were really respected scientists who might have had to do with the UFO story. And then you can also do that. You can do both and they're, they're positive sum. They're not zero sum. And so, yeah, I don't know the, the critique felt, it's like, we're all, we're all kind of on the same team. And so far as we think this is worthy of investigation, I don't know why, you know, I don't know why you're kind of coming after me. And then I think the, mm. the Washington post, so this is kind of inside baseball, but I think it's worth telling because it just shows how dumb the mainstream media is, man. They like, they kind of like, they didn't watch the videos. I'm convinced because they contended with none okay. of the substance. Like, I love this interview, Kirk, because we're like talking about the actual substance of like what we talked about in the doc. Right, and right. he, he didn't, People don't care about facts. He did. He didn't watch the interviews clearly. It was like the, like why are these frat bros from YouTube 
why did they have access or whatever? Jeez. And like, first off, I ask myself the same question every time. You, Washington Post reporter, should be writing about this. And you had your chance, by the way, and you completely whiffed and fucked that up. And so like, th that was really a thing. Like the Washington Post and the New York Times screwed this up. And I even spoke to Leslie Kane, who is a New York Times journalist who published this stuff in the debrief because she had to, because they wouldn't publish a story. And if you just combine Grush's credentials you know, with the claims, you can say, caveat it with whatever you want, say that this stuff is vague mm -hmm. and that the jury's out. But to say that this is not worthy of investigation is, or a story is crazy. And it, and it implies that you have a motive and it's very weird. And so that the, the line that I thought was kind of funny is from the Washington Post reporter is my friend Amar, um, from Yes Theory, who is coordinating with the reporter, um, was, I think he was like, Hey man, I don't think you did the best job with this. And the Washington Post reporter goes, you're lucky to be written about in the Washington Post and to be, you know, in the same article as the greatest living scientist of our time. And he was referring to Avi Loeb as the greatest living scientist of our time. And it's like, uh, you know, it's like, I think Avi Loeb's great, but it's like Roger Penrose still alive. You know, he got, he got, <laughs> is Ed Witten still alive? Like there's, there are a lot, there are a lot, a lot of people you've interviewed who are, you know, so it's like. Uh, they don't give they there there's no critical thinking in 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 the reporting on this and and I was even, I was with my mom the other day and she's like you were in the Washington Post I'm so proud of you and I'm like I appreciate it mom but like watch the documentary cuz it's so much more substantive like the I I you know the the Washington Post reporter was kind of an idiot like <laughs> and kind of smug it is still an honor though <laughs> it is still an honor like congratulations well, thank you I I I don't know I <laughs> <laughs> I care. I know it's not under this. It's not in the way that you would have hoped or would have liked. Yeah. Well, I, can't, I just care about substance. I can't if you if you earnestly engage with the stuff. I don't care who you are. But if you're if you're if you're mm -hmm. smug and dismissive and you're resting on credentials to do it, it's just like they go into the writing these articles where it's like they they have to keep some a priori distance and smugness and like at arm's length, like, I realize this is wacky. I'm writing about UFO. This is unworthy of my liberal arts degree from Williams or whatever. And so, I, you know, mm. and as a member of the intelligentsia, I have to just say that this is all very wacky, but, and then, and then they'll say like one or two kind of intriguing things and then they go away. And it's like, you're doing bad report. It's bad journalism. It's just, it's come on. <laughs> And I get it. It's a, it's hard to sift through. It's hard to sift through the facts. So I understand it, but yeah. <laughs> Let's switch to good journalism. <laughs> okay. There's a documentary on your channel <laughs> called Why the Soylent Green Creator Went to Goat Farm. <laughs> yeah. Something akin to that. Yeah. Okay. So again, the link to that will be in the description. My question to you is, have you considered any radical life change? Hmm. It's so interesting you're asking me this question. It's so serendipitous. Yes. I think big cities are like really in decline. I think the wage to cost of living ratio doesn't make sense for, for people. Um, I don't know. As I, as I get more interested in like the deeper ideas, I feel like time and space is becoming increasingly important. And there's something very frenetic about and like, it's very, it's very con conducive to networking, you know, being in LA or New York or San Francisco, it's like you meet all these people and then, and I'm so grateful for, I've met all, so many amazing people, but, but, but just being here and then it just gets tiring and 
um, there's something about having time and space to like do deep thinking that I feel like is necessary for my next thing. And I think the next thing is more of yeah. the same. It's more content creation as the top of the funnel and more investing as the bottom of the funnel. But it's doing it in a more deep and like considerate and slow way where I, I kind of call, call, you know, call my shot or pick my shots more, pick, uh, 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 pick my battles more. And so, yeah, I'm thinking a lot about like, do I, do I move to, you know, a, a smaller city or, you know, to the woods somewhere or to Europe? And so I think I'm going to be like nomadic actually for the next year, year and a half, call it, and like travel to a bunch of cities and tr- try it out, kind of learn by doing and see, see what I like best and, you know, interview a bunch of cool people along the way, meet with cool startups and learn kind of peripatetically and see, see, see what happens. So that's the biggest radical life shift kind of on the, on the horizon. What about you, Kurt? Do you have any crazy life changes coming? Well, it's, it's similar for wanting to do deep work. I need to, we rent and I need to rent a place with a one bedroom with a closed door so I can do deep mm. work, but it's not as large as backpacking across Europe. <laughs> it's, it's maybe the the next building over. <laughs> For the work that I do, I need I need to study, and it's unfair for me to tell my wife, who lives right in the same unit as me, obviously, mm-hmm. to not walk around in the background, mm-hmm. to not to to be more quiet. Like it's I'm I'm I bark at her unfairly, and so it's it's I need a closed door because it's like I'm spinning ten plates, and then as soon as even if she just goes to the fridge because she needs to eat because she's a person, then I just drop a few plates. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, yeah, I hear you. Well, well, yeah. How's your love life? Oh man. Non-existent. (laughs) It's, um, it's, yeah, I don't know. I think LA is not the best. Like, I feel like a lot, a lot of the, I don't know, people here implicitly value some, some not some not 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 always the best stuff, and I, I've fallen prey to it in the past. Um, but that's that's sort of uh, that's hard to kind of deal with that and kind of the superficiality. Um, and I, you know, I'm also sort of busy with work, and and uh, I'm probably not the easiest person to be with as well. So it's probably you know that element. Yeah, you you have a haunting specter outside your. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, people don't want to deal with the. The 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 succubus wench, you know, that, that walks around my yeah, my property. I understand that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, at least at least she waters the, the flowers. Okay, so so the last two questions are are along the same lines. You're already young, but if you were to give yourself advice when you were younger mm. in with regard to investing mm. and with regard to the and and with regard to studying the phenomenon. What would they be? We'll start with investing first. I think with investing, it would be really trust your. Well, do always always do the work. Like it, you have to. It's simultaneously distrust and distrust your instincts. And what I mean by that is like, if you have like a gut feeling around a person, that almost always comes to roost. And so, if you're like, this person isn't quite aggressive enough or they're or they're a little too aggressive and they're operating out of sort of insecurity or something usually that like that thing is like right and it will co- it will come to play out and not necessarily in an existentially bad mm. pl- way mm. but it will it will play out and so like trust that 
And then the way in which you should distrust your instincts is like, never, don't pre-crystallize knowledge. Don't, you can't want something to happen and bet on, you want, you want to find reality, you want to find truth, and you want to stress test your own belief over and over and over again and whack it over the head and, and, and sort of have a ton of epistemic humility and like, you'll shake out with this gestalt picture of like, okay, they think this is a good bet or I think this is a bad bet, but it should, it should not be after, you know, the first, you know, a few conversations. It should, it should be when you, when you really, really go deep, that's, that's when you get the really, really high conviction, which obviously sounds sort of trite and obvious and, you know, conventional, but I mean, you'd be surprised how many people like don't, just don't do that. And I often think it's interesting, like in, in the venture world, people say, oh, it's just a gamble. You know, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's always a power law. It's just a gamble. And I always think like, you should be, this is a kind of a rule of thumb and there are no, there are no ultimate rules of thumb, and, but it's like, if you're not over 80% sure that a company, that, a, that a, an investment in a company is going to go well, you should definitely not invest in it. And the reason I say that is because there are unknown unknowns. So you need to have the epistemic humility. Like you have to basically like discount all of your bets by like 30% or something. And then would you play roulette for a living? Like if you're dipping below that 50%, would you play roulette for the living? Like, no. So whenever I hear somebody make a, an individual bet that they call a gamble, they go, yeah, it's, that's, that's the game, you know, to whatever. Um, I always, mm-hmm. t- you know, and they're obviously outliers and there, there is probability and luck, of course. But I, I always tend to think when they say that, I'm like, you're going to lose a, a lot of money. Cause there's, there's sort of, there's like sort of like <laughs> error propagation where if everything is, 5149 you know it, it, things could be like a good local trade or whatever and then but then yeah. the risk the risk builds up the risk compounds and then and then in aggregate you're like taking way too much risk and then and then there's the epistemic humility of like not understanding the unknown unknowns so i think that that would be for the investing and then for the for the what was the other for um studying the phenomenon studying the phenomenon i think this is going to sound really weird but like it's, it's studying the phenomena, like things seem to present themselves at the right time. Like, like that Townsend Brown book, the man who mastered gravity was like, he was, th- that book was recommended to me by a, um, university of Chicago anthropologist who's super into UFOs named Hussein Agram. And it like, and he, I also read about it. it Townsend Brown was discussed in the hunt for zero point. And I was thinking about ways to prep for the Grush documentary. And I was like, how do I, how do I prep for this? Like, I, I don't quite know what the right way is. You know, it's like, we can't talk about all these things. And some inner voice was like, you need to like, please, like read the man who mastered gravity. And then my, my, oh, my rap. So you, you have an inner voice. It came. Yeah, but not, it didn't, not in words. It came from Not this. in words, not in words, oh, not okay. a dialogue. But yes, it, yeah, an inner urge. And I kept, and I kept, yeah, and I kept, it kept being like, you know, and again, I'm, I'm articulating this now, but it kept like, you have to read this thing. And nominally that doesn't make sense. Like rationally, that does not make sense. Why, why would you read about an anti-gravity inventor when you're just, you want to learn about UFOs, but something kept telling me like, it's like, no, this is related. Mm -hmm. This is related. This is related. And I read the book and, and that became the entire midsection of the documentary. And 
he he interacted with Sarbacher and Oppenheimer, like I guess Sarbacher, not Oppenheimer, Sarbacher and and LeMay and Teller and all these guys who were clued into the atomic secrets. And then the basically part one of the Greshtok turned into atomic secrecy being this really important thread. And that's why I find the intuition stuff is so interesting. What are the decisions you make in your life that are very irrational, prima facie, but they only make sense in the context of a future endpoint that's like inspirational or awesome or cool. Mm-hmm. And so I think with both the UFO thing and the inv- life in general, it would be like reduce the intensity and the anxiety and the neuroses around like just sheer productive output thinking things sting your rational brain Mm -hmm. of like i have to interview this person or i have to invest in this deal like of course it's going to work out or whatever and just having more faith and going with the flow more and and understanding that things happen and come in their time and life is so much weirder than we probably understand we're swimming in the soup of weirdness and synchronicities come and go and you know maybe they come more if you sort of notice them more and and things come together in sort of a, this beautiful way but you you can't you know this is the Steve Jobs thing you can't connect the dots going forward you can only connect right. them going backwards yeah well that's that's beautiful thank you man thank you that, man that hits home for me because i'm of the type that tries extremely hard almost all the time and focused on productivity like I relate so much to Eminem. I relate so much to to his thought process. Like, firstly, he's umbratic and in the shadows, like me. Like, just put on the yeah the baseball cap and stay away from people. <laughs> I don't put on the baseball cap, but I I have a a pretty cool Panama hat. It's fake, but it looks fantastic. I get complimented on it all the time. I feel so great. <laughs> and also there's this urge in me like a fire, like it has to be the best. It has to be yeah. the best. And you see this in Eminem now. He's way more insecure when he's older yeah. because he's no longer in the scene. And so he's still fighting for number one. And he's constant. That's all he talks about now is you, you won't put me in top five. You won't put me in top five. Totally. I'm top one. I'm, I'm not even top five. I'm like number one. How dare you not put me there? So there's a part of me that's like, I have to work hard, work, 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 yeah. work, be, it's it's not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And I I need to, I also was struggling with the channel. I don't know if you know about that. Struggling, still, still I'm struggling, but it seems to be dissipating financially because of a poor decision I made with, res, with respect to sponsors. Mm, I didn't know. Not, that. It's not the sponsor's fault. It's like the the broker of the sponsor, mm. the people who bring you the sponsors. Damn. And I was doing some sponsors for free. And it takes so much effort to do a sponsor spot and it devalues a video. Yeah. And luckily now I have I have high value Good. sponsors. In fact, this video is sponsored by Copilot. Sweet. And you've heard about them before. And That's they, on brand. workout app. And I love, yes, it yeah. is. It is. You know Copilot Fitness? Oh, I thought you were talking about GitHub Copilot. Or I guess that wouldn't be no. a sponsored feature. But um, no, it's Copilot yeah, right, Fitness. Right, right. Copilot Fitness. Okay, they're not paying me for this. But yeah, this is organic. So maybe I'll take this out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's completely organic. It's, it's a fitness app. and like, It's an app that takes you, you first meet with your coach. They ask you, what are your goals? And it's super cool. The guy texts me all the time to say like, hey, are you going to go to your workout today? And then if I say, I don't like this one, he says, oh, okay, I'll substitute it for another one next week. Sweet. My wife loves it. I got to check it out. Yeah, so we have. Maybe I'll use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have sponsors now that are that are great. And. Anyway, it's just struggling, struggling, struggling. So this whole 
aspect of hoping or wishing or having faith that it will be okay in the long run. Something I need to do. More I think of. it will, man. You're you're the at the center of so many interesting people and conversations. And I mean, it would be a, a shame if anything were to happen to that. And I, I don't think it's going to, I think I see, I see what you, I see you just thought that you're just getting started. I think I'm very long what you're, what you're doing that. And I'm not just saying that in a, I'm not kissing your ass. This is not obsequious. I, I'm very bullish on it and I'm bullish on myself for similar, for similar reasons. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see where you, where you take it and you're, uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. I like I'd like your opinion on this. For me, when I watch a UFO video or I make one mm-hmm. myself, like I interview someone on the topic, like a Ross Coltart or mm-hmm. whatever it may be, I'm invariably disappointed because I have looming in me large expectations of a grand revelation. Yep. And then it doesn't come out. Yep. And then so how do you deal with that? Probably not super well. I get fatigued. I get cynical around a lot of the same things that people who are cynical about some of my interviews get cynical about. Like I'm not like this, like uh. you know, you know. And, uh, it's hard, and and I just want to know the answer, and you know. But and then I remind myself, well, I know way more about this stuff than I did three or four years ago, and it's like more coherent. Mm. It's not like a bunch of random disparate facts. It's like things that are building on uh, a possible real narrative. And I have all these books that I want to read in the future based on that real narrative and just keep going. And like, and then I also remind myself, like, if this stuff is true, so say we have, you know, 10 to 15, you know, however many crafts in the U.S. government possession or whatever, would it be possible that we it hasn't leaked and nobody's, you know, actually, you know, none of the material has leaked. No, no, no high res photos have leaked. Like, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. That's possible. And would it be possible that, you know, most of the personnel in the program wouldn't say anything a hundred percent. And then maybe there are people who have come out. Um, and so I just remind myself like to the people who are like, there's no evidence, there's no data. Like, no, the government hasn't fully disclosed, of course. Like, therein lies what me and you are doing now, Kurt. But, like, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff. And, yeah, of course, it's. Uh, there, I get super frustrated. But in some ways, I don't know, maybe this is a rationalization, but I think it's like a good – it's like such – it takes such mental gymnastics, like the theorizing around it that um, – yes. and the, the fact-finding, the pattern-matching, that it keeps you sharp too. So I think that's interesting. And so rife mm. with snake oil. You have to really pan for gold and suss out and distill the fact from, from fiction that, that that I think is good for your – it's healthy for your for your sort of thought process. And then, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's – those are the main points. Well, how, how, do, how do you keep going? Because I'm sure – yeah, I'm sure as you said, you feel you feel disillusioned a lot of the time. Yeah, it's, it's disheartening because there's a dearth of new information. And so you've seen on the Toe channel that I've pulled back in the past six months or even a year on the content on interviewing people on this topic because it's just, I want something new. Everyone wants something new and then you don't get it. You still learn and there's still something positive about asking the same question again, because you can elicit a novel response. So for instance, this happens in the math world. There's something called a compact set. And 
I thought I knew what a compact set was until someone asked, another undergrad asked, what's a compact set to like the world's best mathematician named Terry Tao? And you'd think that's a waste of his time. Why would you ask such a rudimentary question? And then he gives this exposition on it and it's online. It's, there's this PDF. He gives one on differential forms, like first and second year concepts that are illuminated because you just ask a sophomoric question. Well, anyhow, you're encouraging me to, to, to go venture a bit more into this topic, dip my toes into it. Some I more. think you should. There's, we should do like a reading yeah. group or something. Like I, I often think the the open source research on this is super stovepiped, and it's like you probably know some stuff I don't know. I know stuff you don't know. Ross Cuthart knows stuff. Colthart knows stuff that that neither of us know. Corbell knows stuff, and it's like. I just want to get to the truth as fast as possible. I'm, you know, you know, I'm, I make some ad revenue off my show or whatever, but I, I'm not like monetizing this in any big way. It's not, it's not my, you know, source of like, I just want to get to the truth. And I would love to have some mm-hmm. sort of study group or something join forces. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't need to be the disclosure guy. You know, <laughs> for me in physics and consciousness, there seems to be plenty of uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. And and that may prove inexorably bound with the phenomenon, mm. but either either way, that's it's interesting on its own. So if you're a toe fan and you're listening or watching, and you are also similarly tired of being inundated with shop worn information, then watch one of the episodes of Toe that you don't think you you would like, like one of the physics mm. or the consciousness ones. I think you'd be surprised. Yeah. Also, something podcast like yours, even though yours is more like yours is a documentary, mm. but let's say content, content on YouTube in this domain, maybe something like a nurse crop. So the nurse crop is a concept of of a necessary precondition for something that you want to occur to occur. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's great. Yeah, and that, that's how I see Grush, or that's how I see that's how I see Lou. That's how I see many of these people. I see them as nurse crops. Uh, totally. That's my goal. I just want to push the conversation forward and again, push it forward in a non-dogmatic way where if if anybody can speak on the same layer and falsify any of the stuff, I would love that. There's a document that's been FOIA'd, you know, in 2006 that was, it's dated November 12th, you know, 1963 from JFK to the CIA, where he's asking for information about UFOs from the CIA 10 years before his death. Can somebody, please, somebody, can John Greenwald, can you focus on falsifying that like or, or corroborating it or you know whatever let's let's like, get close to the truth on that and it's just it's weird how much information is just sort of sitting there in this like gray area state where and it's like I, I, it feels like i have to do like a vi- vigilante job where it's like ufo reporting is the crime and i'm a, a sort of a bystander not super well equipped to to you know make sure the crime doesn't happen but it's like i feel i feel duty and then and then I, I don't feel like I'm best equipped to do some of this stuff where some of these documents are just lying there in this like sort of, you know, liminal space. And we should, we should, we should, we should falsify or corroborate them. Jesse, it was a pleasure. Like super, super fun. It's awesome. I didn't think it would go this long. It went double the length. This was so cool. And I'm super tired now. I love it, man. <laughs> yeah, I always love talking. This is awesome. And I'm I'm pumped to put our thing out and, um, I, I'm honored to be on. I feel it's super unqualified to be on this show. So thank you for giving me no, the time. You're, well, well, you're honoring the channel. I appreciate you, you, you being on. Thank As you. As always, man. Yeah, I got to. Maybe I'll make it up to Toronto in my uh, 
nomadic quest. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun. Are you backpacking? Uh, no, it's more more, more, more like that. Airbnb being in a city for a month or something and going going from place all to right, place. All right. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Take, Take care. care. The podcast is now pretty much concluded. I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you so much. One side note, quite a few people personally messaged me about the letter that I alluded to earlier in this podcast, and I'm including it one more time here, updating you all on the status of the Theories of Everything channel in case you missed it. I've also started this tradition where on every episode or every other episode, I'll highlight a comment and read it because, hey, if you're like me, then you don't have many people to speak to about these subjects outside of conversing online and digitally. This is my way of not only highlighting a certain comment, but also encouraging the community that we've established. The last time it was Bijou's comments about there being no wave function of the universe, at least from one point of view, but from another point of view, there does exist a wave function of the universe. This time I want to tell you about a comment not attached to a podcast, but attached to a post. And to explain that, I'm going to just read the post for you so that you have some context. Dear friends, as I sit down to write this, I want to express my deepest gratitude. Your support, engagement, and the passion for the Theories of Everything podcast have been the driving force behind this endeavor. We've built a community that shares a fervor for science and philosophy, and for that, I'm eternally grateful, truly. Despite our 240,000 subscribers and the vibrant community that we've built, the past 11 months have been challenging. Behind the scenes, our channel has been grappling with financial struggles. Our content, deeply rooted in science and philosophy, unfortunately falls into a category that doesn't fetch the highest ad revenue on YouTube, to say the least. This isn't just our struggle. Even Sabine Hassenfelder recently mentioned a similar issue. During 2023, I've been working harder than ever, which I didn't think was possible, often at the expense of personal and family time. The effort that goes into each Toe episode is immense. I pour my heart and soul into researching and studying for each episode to ensure that we deliver the most in-depth and high-quality content, forcing myself to watch myself even, which is extremely cringeworthy as you can imagine, so that I can improve on each episode. Despite my love for studying for Toes and the joy I derive from interacting with our guests and community, the financial returns have been far from promising. This letter is a discussion or disclosure by me on what's been going on behind the scenes at Toe. Our struggles have been exacerbated by issues with sponsorships, which were once a significant part of our revenue. Despite the promise of good returns, the sponsorships recently turned out to be a financial setback. Unforeseen expenses such as poor deals that we weren't aware of until later, writing scripts, dealing with the sponsor intermediaries, acquiring products for review that were sent across the border, and then paying our dedicated editor have strained our resources. There were even instances where we unknowingly did sponsored spots for free, believing that we were being paid. That's right, for free. This is unheard of. However, I take full responsibility for these mishaps, and I sincerely apologize for any disruption they may have caused to our content. I've had and still have no podcasting mentors nor connections. Zero. Everything's been built from the ground up. I've learned some hard lessons along the way. There were several times when we interviewed large names and they didn't so much as tweet about Toe, despite them promoting other podcasters. I would be disingenuous if I were to pretend I'm not a tad bit hurt, but that's just how it goes. Luckily, the depth and breadth of our content have always been a point of pride at Theories of Everything. In fact, the guests themselves invariably remark on air and off air how this is the most thorough, the most in-depth of any conversation with them out there. Wonderfully, even the comment sections seem to echo this sentiment. Like, man, oh man, that's fantastic. I believe in quality over quantity. 
at least for Toe, and work to ensure that every single episode is not just informative with meticulous timestamps, but also thought-provoking and engaging. Hearing from you and the community about how Toe has ignited intellectual curiosity, changed lives, inspired you, helped you through your own dark nights, and provided a platform for discussions that might otherwise be out of reach, fuels my commitment. It's an honor and a privilege. I too know what it feels like to be lonely in this space of physics, math, AI, consciousness, without anyone to talk to who doesn't look at you like a nerdy quantum quirkster, other than, say, virtually. To keep Toe alive and thriving, we're working on several projects. So for instance, number one, we're developing an artificial intelligence tool to recover old audio and improve the sound of episodes like the old Chomsky episodes. Number two, there's a lost lecture of Stephen Wolfram's from MindFest that we're recovering the audio from by developing, again, an AI tool. And this tool should prove helpful for future podcasts as well. Number three, we're working on translating our episode into different languages to reach a wider audience. You'll now see there are several accurately captioned languages. Number four, I would like to do more in-person interviews. Number five, I would like to do compilation episodes on specific topics from several guests. So usually you have one guest speaking on several topics. What about if we just said, hey, does quantum mechanics give rise to consciousness? Yes or no. And then we have every guest on that subject. Or hey, what is the physics of free will? And we have every guest on that subject. Most channels of our size have teams, but Toe doesn't. It's just me and the editor, and we each work more than full-time. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the darling angel that is my wife, of course. Without her, there would be no toe. There may not even be a Kurt. You'll see many other YouTubers interviewing the same people, and that's because it pays significantly more to go with what works. On toe, I've purposefully chosen not to interview high-profile guests that I feel like are featured on the podcast circuit repeatedly. Now, the positive side of interviewing people repeatedly is that it opens you up to massive connections and influence. But on the deleterious side, I feel like it would sacrifice a modicum of character, in my likely wrong opinion. Instead, I've opted to bring hidden gems like Michael Levin, who has astounding theories and studies to the forefront and to delve extensively into them. Therefore, I'm reaching out to you, our loyal subscribers, for support. Your contribution would go a long way in helping us maintain and improve the quality of our content, ensuring the longevity of Toe. If you would like to contribute to Toe, there are two primary ways, both listed in the description. There's number one, Patreon, at patreon.com slash Kurt There's number two, PayPal, at tinyurl slash PayPal, T-O-E, with a capital T-O-E, lowercase PayPal. In fact, PayPal gives more to the creator. Every dollar helps. It's difficult to underestimate how your support keeps Toe and myself and my wife going, both financially in terms of the emotional support, knowing there are people who will voluntarily donate something that they could have spent in innumerable ways somewhere else for no other reason than they want to help out. If you already support Toe and want to increase your donation, then of course, we would more than welcome that as well. Thank you again for being part of the Toe community your continued backing and engagement mean the world to us. Here's to exploring even more theories of everything together. Warm regards, Kurt Jaimungle. P.S. If you're ever curious about what future projects there are of Toe, you can always message me with specific questions. Me and or my wife read every single comment and try to respond when we can. There's also a day in the life of a hectic time at Toe, and luckily it's no longer anywhere near as shambolic. Despite the turmoil of the past 11 months, They've simultaneously been the most rapturous of my life. It's a blessing. Thank you dearly. Man, thank you. Thank you so much. 
after the posting of that letter, there's been a flurry of support, not only from you, from the audience, but also from other podcasters. Coincidentally enough, Theo Vaughn, a channel with over 2 million subscribers, just talked about this same issue happening to him on his channel with being cheated over sponsor deals and also waiting approximately a year before saying anything publicly because we're not allowed to. Here's a 65-second snippet from September 2023 on Theo Vaughn's channel. Link in the description. Uh, so yeah, you can keep that money, um, but you can't get me to shut up, man. You know how many other podcasters wanted to say this shit right now but can't say it? The way that people are able to cheat and lie and, and manipulate the system. Fuck, it's just fucking kind of sad, man. And Yeah, but I just wanted to speak up for myself, man. I've waited a year to speak up for myself. They put us through so much bullshit. And I don't know if there's other people over there that did it too. And maybe we'll get more information. I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't do that to somebody. And he, they, they, they did it, man, they did it to, I mean, some of these people's podcasts this is all they had, man. And these motherfuckers did that, bro. So I'm sorry about that. Um, and I'm sorry for them. And yeah, I'm just happy to have a voice for myself. And that's one thing that we built here that, that he had nothing to do with. He had nothing to do with. In fact, he stole on our backs once and I'm not letting these people do it to me two times. So for anybody that had to take that, that sucker deal over there, uh, this voice, I'm speaking on behalf for all of us, man. Um, cause I know that some of you guys have said to me that you wanted to say some of these same things and notes and the person he's speaking about has nothing to do with toe i just want to make that clear though we've gone through what's similar furthermore the problem is not with the sponsors the sponsors are great and visiting the sponsors helps support this channel the problem is instead with some of the companies who represent you to the sponsors one comment of the over 500 like man this post alone has more comments on it than when i ask for questions for yosha bach or for noam chomsky like holy moly thank you thank you thank you so much so now the following comes from an email, which was precipitated by the YouTube community post that I just shared. Actually, it was by my thank you email to this person. Hi, Kurt. The decision to donate was entirely motivated by gratitude for the great conversations and information your channel has brought me. In terms of feedback, maybe what I value most about Toe is the depth that you're willing to go to for the complex topics. It's clear that you genuinely want to understand the nuances of each and attempt to reconcile with similar and competing ideas. I love that you're willing to bring up the competing theories and complementary views, even get people to foster many sharing ideas like Michael Levin and Yosha Bach, two people I'm a huge fan of. That said, sometimes I feel like you put a bit too much pressure on yourself in terms of preparation. I love that intent, but it struck me as a bit excessive, and I'm sure you're aware for the need for balance and probably agonize over it. Just know that I don't expect you to have an encyclopedic knowledge of decades of some person's work just to adequately interview them. I understand how tricky this balance must be, though. I'm going to comment on that in one moment, but just here's one more that touched my heart. And this one is by James Mackey. Thank you for all your work. It's meant a great deal to me. In 2015, I was sleeping on sofas, listless and destructive. Now I have my PhD at the London College of Music coming up, and I'm lecturing this year at Durham College, and I'm pleased with who I am today. Much of what I like about myself, I've modeled on the values I see in yourself and your interviewees. Serene, sincere, kind, and concerned. I found a tremendous consolation in discovering the academic community with you over the last five years or so. You've been a role model and introduced me to several, many other role models. The comments that I'm going to start reading at the end of the episodes aren't always just effusive thank you comments to me. They're generally going to be about other podcasts and ideas and theories, but because of the preceding YouTube community posts that I just mentioned, I thought it was apt to talk about this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Also, with regard to the pressure and the reason why I study so hard, it's not actually because I want to have the best quote-unquote interview. It's because the goal of the Theories of Everything podcast is 
in part, in large part, for me to understand every theory. And in order to do so, I study super hard because I'm speaking with the author of a theory and I don't want to waste this opportunity. In other words, the production of a podcast is the side effect of me just trying to understand theories, particularly theories of everything, the largest theories. So that's not something I've made clear and I hope this helps demystify the reason for why am I putting on so much pressure to study for each guest. It's not just to have a great interview because maybe I could study half as much or even 20% as much. It's because I want to understand the theories. There's also playlists. So if you want, you can look in the YouTube description. There's several playlists for Toe. You can click on that so you can go through episodes one by one if you like. Every episode on Toe is edited so there's no large spikes in the volume or loud jumps with music so that people can listen as they sleep. Because I know I used to listen to podcasts as I sleep and I would dislike when they would just quote someone and then the levels were obscene and it would wake me and then I couldn't fall back asleep because I'm worried it's not going to happen again. That won't happen for Toe. If you personally want to message me to get in contact for whatever reason, for sponsorships, for donations, for support, just telling me what Toe has meant to you, if that's what you want, then you can email me directly at Toe, so T-O-E, at IndieFilmTO.com. So that's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-T-O.com. Toe at IndieFilmTO.com. Thank you so much for all your support. Thank you, thank you. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash Kurt Jimungle and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.